Hi, it's Susan. Amazon Prime has recently started showing an original movie for them. It's called Radioactive, and it's the story of Marie Curie. We covered Marie over two episodes back in 2016. For those of you that are curious about Marie's real life, we've taken those two episodes, edited them down, remastered them a bit. This is a long episode, even by our standards. So what we've done is broken the episode into chapters. So there'll be a logical stopping point for you to stop listening and then come back later. Now, on with the show. Chapter 1. Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Let's talk about Marie Curie. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1895, the National Trust was founded in Britain. Physicist Wilhelm Conrad Röntgen accidentally discovered X-rays. Alfred Nobel's will established the Nobel Prize. Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake premiered. Volleyball was invented in Massachusetts. Frederick Douglass died at the age of 77. Catherine Lee Bates published America the Beautiful. And on July 26, 1895, Maria Slodowski and Pierre Curie, brought together by literal magnetism, were married. And here's your 30-second summary with a certain amount of apology. I was a little product of the Polish aristocracy. Because I was a girl, I could not go to university. My dreams and friends were realized, and twice I won the Nobel Prize, polonium and radium and radioactivity. Maria Salomea Sklodowska was born on November 7th, 1867, in Warsaw, Poland, to Vladislav Sklodowski and Bronislava Boguska Sklodowska. Oh, I should get points for I'm those like names. sitting here, I'm like silently applauding you. That's I wrote amazing. them phonetically, That's so good. I cheated. Yeah, you did good. She's the youngest of five children, one boy and four girls. Now, a brief word on Poland itself. It had had a king until 1795. We've actually already met him. Catherine the Great's boyfriend, Stanislav Poniatowski, and 63. The kingdom had been getting too powerful for all of its neighbors. A very long story, very short, very long and very short, <laughs> Poland was divided up among the three superpowers, and Warsaw was in the Russian section, unfortunately. And I can only describe this situation as boots on the neck. A few years before our Manya, as she was nicknamed, was born, there had been an unsuccessful rebellion by the Poles against the Russians, who did not play. Thousands of Poles were punished for it. Siberia, prison, seizure of goods, you know... The security guards, <laughs> right after a crime, are super alert, and that's the position that society's in right now. So as a result, Russia set out to crush the Polish culture completely. You're all Russians now. No speaking Polish. Don't teach it to your children. Street signs are now Russian only. Polish books are confiscated. Informants welcomed. <laughs> How you like me now? Yeah, I, not much. No, thank you. So both of Manya's parents were running great risks right now every day. By teaching in secret Polish language and history classes on the sly. Such trouble. They could get into, their students could get into, if the authorities ever got wind of this, but the dream, everybody's dream, everybody's secret dream was in independent Poland again. Mm -hmm. And the only way they could get that is if their the next generation was raised with that same sense of nationalism yeah. in country pride. And they had to know who the Polish authors were and the Polish history. But the Russians and, wanted to erase yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And you don't know who's on your side. That's the scary part. So Mama and Papa were both teachers. Mama in the relative obscurity of a private girl's school. 
<laughs> so helps, I guess, to be a girl. But poor Papa taught boys at a government school where he was under the thumb and the eyes of the authorities all the time. They're always popping up, trying to trip you up into saying something subversive. I mean, he's teaching math and physics. <laughs> How much subversion can you do? You know what? For someone like him, who is who had deep pride in Poland, yeah, you could probably slip it in anywhere. Oh, that's true. Well, he had to develop this kind of dual personality. Inside, he's this rebel professor, and outside, he's the perfect government functionary. And I think that'll take the toll on you. You got to keep it all in all the time. That's so stressful. I know. Well, Mama and Papa really didn't plan to teach little Manya to read too soon. Seven or eight will get started. Why don't we focus on learning by doing, by observation? I love them already. <laughs> the Montessori people. No, this yeah, reminds you... me of Frank Gilbreth mm-hmm. in Cheaper by the Dozen, mm-hmm. you know, Lillian Gilbreth's yeah. husband. Anything can be an opportunity. Yeah. So intelligent baby of five kids. <laughs> little Manya was reading out for and reading without Sesame Street. What's the latest incarnation of that? Bubble guppies? Bubble, 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 guppy, guppy, guppy. Oh, my God. I love that show. Okay. I <laughs> never, I was at my sister's house and heard it, and I was like, what is this? Bubble, guppies. Your youngest child is 11. Yeah. How, How do it, you know that? It was on. On what? Nickelodeon? Oh. Maybe. When he was that, I mean, he it was. Oh, the, I thought I it was a new thing. No, okay. Oh, no, 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 no. It was on. It was, and I, you know, I think I'm a mermaid. Like in my head, I'm a mermaid. So it's underwater. So I really loved it. <laughs> Things we learn about Susan. Well, look at my necklace. This is audio, but what's I on my necklace? I have one contact in. Oh, I couldn't possibly <laughs> it's tell a you. Mermaid. Oh, on a on a Scrabble tile. Oh, that's cute. I know. Anyway, uh, that would be off the beaten path. So little Manya went off to primary school, where honestly, she was pretty well the star pupil, despite her age, regardless. She is one of those people that seems to absorb knowledge by osmosis. The science terms begin. The science terms begin. The process of gradual or unconscious assimilation of ideas and knowledge. Not, speaking of cartoons, Uh the cartoon Osmosis Jones. (laughs) Have you heard of it? Okay, that one I have never heard of. It stars Chris Rock as a white blood cell. Oh my gosh. Osmosis? Is this Osmosis Jones? Is this just like a one shot deal? Or is it an animated? I think it's a movie. Because that sounds awesome. So, anyway, Chris Rock is a white blood cell. Is a white blood cell. Okay. I love that. I would do a Chris Rock impersonation, but I don't have one. I don't either. Yeah. I don't have very many men. (laughs) Well, well. (laughs) Let's not take that sentence out of context. So here's the thing. Remember, this school and many others were defying the government, the illegal overlords, as the people saw them. These kids were learning Polish language and history 100% against the law. And like kids of today practice fire drills. The girls in Manya's school practiced, I guess you call it, inspector drill. Inspector drills. The inspectors would come in and they would walk into a classroom and pull a student and start asking them questions. You know, and they like to pull Manya because she's little, but she was really smart. Yeah, they had a protocol. The oldest girls, they were always sitting in the back, like Little House on the Prairie. The oldest girls went down the rows and everyone put their Polish books in their aprons. Mm-hmm. There was an undisclosed secret location. The oldest girls ran out, hid the Polish books, came back in. Everybody had their sewing out by the time, in this particular case that Manya remembers in mm-hmm. her autobiography. Right. Um, they were working on buttonholes. And I tell you what, this reminds me so much of when I used to have a boss that had no idea what I did. No idea what I did. Uh-huh. And so he would come behind my screen and there'd be boxes swirling on the screen and he'd be like, well, well done. Good. 
Okay. So I'm just imagining this male inspector coming in. All the little girls are sewing buttonholes. And he's like, excellent work. Like, whatever that is. So I, so whether it's the same buttonholes that the last inspector saw, they yeah. haven't even done any more on it. No but, freaking idea. No. Um, so the inspector asked questions and Manya hated to be called on. Hated it. He asked her to say the Lord's Prayer in Russian. I've got a link to that in the show notes, by the way. The list of czars. So have you been learning your Russian history? Mm. And who rules over us was a question. And think about how hard that is when you fully know what you're supposed to say. You don't want to say it, but you kind of have to say it. Also, you're 10 years old. (laughs) It's hard. And so she finally had to say His Majesty Alexander II, Tsar of all the Russias. But you have to say it with great enthusiasm. And not vomit while you're saying it. Correct. And you and me apologizing and your fingers crossed behind your back. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'm so sorry. So she didn't break down until the guy left. Poor little thing. She cried. Well, yeah. That's stressful. The whole Russia-Poland dynamic reached its finger right into the house, though. Papa and the native teachers like him were being replaced with Russians. I don't think Papa let his guard down exactly. I mean, there was known hostility between him and his boss. Don't get me wrong. But I think that's like pheromones or... Philosophy, maybe. I don't know. But Papa was forced out of his job. And the problem is they lived in what's called a tied residence. So they had to move also into cheaper accommodation. And they had to take in student boarders. I I have read 10. I have read 20. That's a lot. They're both overwhelming. I know. No kidding. They're everywhere. And the house is not huge. So the boarders get first dibs on the beds. So they were sleeping in the dining room, the living room, wherever they could, and helping out a lot around the house. Yeah, however many kids there were, they did bring enough money into the house to live. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, they also brought something else. They brought typhoid into the house. Two of Manya's sisters, Branya and Zosha, did contract the typhus. Um, Branya did manage to recover, but unfortunately, Zosha did not. Of a disease that is now treatable with a course of antibiotics. How many times? In our recordings, do we say that? I know. And just a year and a half later, Mama died of tuberculosis. And she had been suffering from this since about the time Manya was born. And she had always tried to keep her children safe. They always had to live in close proximity. They used separate dishes. Um, her mother never hugged and kissed her, even though so she never had that physical you know, long-term physical contact with her mother. But she was just trying to protect her. Yeah, I know. So tuberculosis, now treatable with antibiotics, although tuberculosis, you have to take months worth of them. Months, even now. And not to scare anybody, but it looks like typhoid is getting harder to treat again. And tuberculosis, too. Ooh. Antibiotic resistance. Any scientists out there, I think there is a wide open field for a brand new (laughs) antibiotic. I'm sure you already know this. If you're qualified to make one, you probably already know this. Well, poor little Manya. For sure, you know, more changes are coming. Manya went on from her grammar school. Grammar school, elementary school, is always this cozy little family kind of place, isn't it? Manya's teacher had suggested that Manya stay back. At this point, her mother had just died, and little Manya was in a depression. It was a situational depression, and emotionally, she was really withdrawn. So the teacher thought maybe she should stay back a year and just, you know, do this year all over again. But Papa thought differently. And he said, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to put her ahead and I'm going to put her in the public gymnasium school because it's got a stricter educational standards. And that's how she switched schools. She went off to gymnasium 13. Not, as I first thought, a place that smells like 80 years of gym socks. <laughs> I know that's the first, when I read it too, I was like, gymnasium, that sounds physical. 
Oh, but no, it's in Poland and Germany. A gymnasium is more like a prep school. You know, mm. very focused on academics and quite anti-Polish, mm. as it turns out. So on one hand, Manya and her friends took care to spit on this memorial every morning on their way to school. <laughs> it honored Polish people who had served the Russians. So they made a point. I mean, if they forgot, they would double back and spit on it, even if they were late to school. But they know not to speak Polish in the street and to make sure who was around before you talked at all in any language. Get this. One time she stayed up all night to comfort one of her friends whose brother had been caught by the authorities and was executed at dawn. These are middle school age children in a vigil for somebody's brother Mm -hmm. who's about to be killed. Yeah. The Russians weren't joking around. Harsh reality. Very harsh. Well, Manya was an excellent student. She still had that amazing ability to absorb new information. And she had developed quite a talent for concentration, I think, because of all those people in the house all the time. <laughs> she'd lay the book on the table and she'd make a triangle with her head and her two elbows on the table, like a little a little visual tent uh-huh. there, and set up shop and heard nothing. And saw nothing. And her sisters thought that was super funny. And once built a framework of all the chairs in the house around her. While she was studying. And she didn't even notice until she stood up to go to the bathroom or something. And they fall fell down. She's like, you're stupid. (laughs) Can you imagine being able to have that level? It's kind of like when you're reading a book and you're totally wrapped up in it, except to the nth degree. Okay, so I have to say, I must have had that concentration as a child. Ask my mother about the time they had to get a ladder, climb to my second story window, and break the window to get my attention out of a book after they locked themselves out of the house once. Oh my god! I didn't hear the phone. I didn't hear the knocking. I didn't hear the yelling. I heard nothing. And they just meant to knock on the window where they knew I was reading. Uh-huh. And unfortunately, my dad broke it when he put the ladder up. Ooh. Didn't hear the cursing either, did I? No, I didn't. As uh, far as I know, that window might still be broken. It's a big, weird window. But I, anyway... Wait, wait, wait. The $64,000 question. What was the book? Gosh, I don't even know. Oh, no. Probably Little House on the Prairie. Something. Probably. It could be anything. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't even matter. Well, by the time Manya was 16, she was done with school. And she was the third valedictorian in the family. They had to be, like, the best. They were very intelligent. But when it, Hella came in second in her class, and it was, like, a major disappointment. So, anyway, the gold medal was her first award in her career, but it certainly wouldn't be her last. And finally, finally, Papa looked with his eyes at his daughter who was pale and nervous and stressed out and honestly kind of depressed. She'd been grinding these grades. She'd been working hard, harder than anyone, honestly, in his family. And that's saying something. Mm -hmm. He finally saw and he arranged for his studious daughter to have, I have to say, the most glorious gap year I've ever heard of. She went to the country. She visited relatives. She swam and walked and... Just picked wildflowers. At first, she slept like hard sleep, mm-hmm. and then she like came out of it again. The situational depression is is popping its head again. But she came out of it, and she's it's just country like think sunshine and butterflies and birds. Yeah, she met peasants. She rode horses. She uh, stayed with the countess. I she had this very active social life. The, the one of the houses she stayed at, there was parties all the time. She stayed out all night. At parties, dancing, wearing out her shoes. (laughs) I love this one story where some guy, they sent him on a fake errand and they tied all his furniture to the beams of the ceiling. So he came back and everything, he looked like, what? The freshman year of college without actual classes. Yeah. If they had had saran wrap, I'm (laughs) sure something would have gotten saran wrapped. But so, yeah, she went to this thing. I think this is good too, called a Kulig 
So how do I explain this? It's a singing, feasting, drinking, slaying party that travels from house to house, picking up more and more and more and more people as you go. And then you get to the last house and then you dance until eight in the morning. I love that. Manya loved it Actually, too. subdivisions, I know you don't live in them, but they do those. It, do what? Do- Coolings? Well, we don't call them coolers. You should, because that'd be cool. <laughs> One person does the appetizer, and then the next person does drinks, and then the next house, and everybody goes from house to house to house. What do you know? I know. Some subdivisions, they're themed. So they get dressed up in costume, like 50s housewives or 50s TV shows or something. Well, man, if you guys have that in your neighborhood, send us a picture. We'd like to see your coolings. Oh, wait. Finally, something Beckett likes about <laughs> the suburbs from afar. Afar. It's going to be good. Well, gap year, as we use it today, implies that at the other end, there's going to be some kind of college. Mm. Alas, no girls allowed in college in Poland. You know, find a nice boy and settle down. Why don't you? Russian authorities, I would like to alert you now to what is happening right under your nose. (laughs) Manya and her sisters, as well as, honestly, about a thousand other brave Mm -hmm. souls. I think mostly women. Yeah, I do. Because the boys could go to college. Yeah. Uh, they participated in an underground university, and I've seen it most often translated as floating, but also flying and winged university. I kept, every time I read it, I saw Hogwarts in my head. Well, they met in secret in different locations, not in the air, sorry, to study um, mostly science, anatomy, biology, botany, and then they, they would talk literature and politics. But not only that, get this, they collected books, Polish books, and taught poor children or factory workers or shop assistants to read and to think, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is more subversive than reading, I suppose. But uh, so much trouble they could have gotten into. No excuse for youth, honestly. You're 16, proceed to the execution. I mean, they don't care. She was part of this thing called the positivity movement. Revolution, it's not the thing. Gradual improvement is where we see that we can make a difference. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you teach one. She right. teaches one exponentially and so on. Right. So Manya self-educated herself in addition to this in so many other subjects. And she read whatever she could get her hands on, but it, it just, you know, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. No. And it wasn't an existence they could keep. You know, she and Branya were doing these classes and tutoring, but there wasn't enough money coming in. They, they yeah. needed a plan. These two brilliant minds. Branya wanted to be a doctor and Manya wanted to be a scientist. You can't do that in a floating university. Or in Poland. Or in Poland. Yeah, that's true. You could learn those things. But what good does it do? But you can't, yeah, apply them. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they made a deal. They made a scheme. Branya, who was older, would go to France, where women were training to be doctors. That's Branya's dream. Mm-hmm. So Branya would go first. And Manya would work and send Branya money to support her. And then... When Branya was done, and she was a doctor, and she was earning money, she, in turn, would pay for Manya's turn. And it was the only way to get them both through. Mm-hmm. It, it sounded, it was a real workable plan. Yeah. You know, Manya would take her time, she'd stop the, you know, the schooling thing, and be a governess to a family. Um, so she did. That's what they did. It, the first job only lasted about three months because the family found her arrogant. <laughs> I wrote, boy, howdy, did this suck, is what I wrote. So, arrogance seems but better. She, and she said she found them demoralized by wealth. That's how she found the family. Uh, they made sure to humiliate her in front of their guests. Oh, new money. The class that she was from used to have the money. Yeah. They used to be aristocrats, and then they got all their land taken away. You can tell a lot about people by how they treat, I guess I have to say, servants, or mm-hmm. in modern day, 
waiters. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You can tell a lot about someone, like, that's a marker mm-hmm. of new money if they feel like they have to humiliate the waiter in front of you. Don't yeah. date them. No. Red flag. Run. So when a better paying job came along, even though it was way out in the country and not in the pretty country, it's kind of like beet farming country. It was a beet farm. Yeah. yeah. I'm just saying. It wasn't like beautiful butterfly country. Yeah. Although the, uh, there's a documentary and I'll put a link on the show notes and you, the woman goes there, the one that owns it, they go there and they show you the house that she lived in and, and the land. And it, I mean, it's kind of pretty as in winter, so it looked really pretty, but Yeah. Farmland, far away from everything. So off to the Zorovskis, already treated much better because they met her at the train station with furs to keep her warm and a hot drink. Ooh, that's a good sign already. No kidding. She was really hired to teach the 10-year-old girl of the house four hours a day. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what her her job was. But she ended up becoming really good friends with the oldest daughter of the house. And together they started an, do I have to say it, illegal little... Uh, elementary school for village children in Manya's room. See how, I mean, just see how utterly important this is to just all walks of life. The village people could get in trouble for sending their little children here, but the village people thought it was worth doing. Right. Two, it's not just Manya and the upper classes like, oh, let me go and help the poor. Yeah. Everybody was down. Um, I mean, her boss knew about it and mm-hmm. everything. This yeah. isn't like... Well, her daughter's doing it, too. So they referred to her as that brilliant Miss Lidovska to everyone. Refreshing. <laughs> Compare it to, to the other job. Yeah. She was also that beautiful Miss Lidovska, in case you're wondering. <laughs> I know. She, um... I don't... You think of Marie Curie in the pictures you see. You know, she's older, but at this point, she's got dark blonde hair, gray eyes. She's about five feet tall. She's... I, I hate to use this word to describe someone that has a brain and an, uh, an intelligence and a contribution to society, but she was adorable. So, the oldest boy, Casimir, came Kazmia. home... Mm, came home from college that summer. The two of them fell in love. Well, he was smart and dashing and... You know, here's this woman that's his age right in front of him. Oh, hello. Well, they thought it was going to be smooth sailing because after all, his parents freaking love her. Mm -hmm. They freaking love her. They had had her family to stay. Everybody made her presents. And, Mm -hmm. you know. They treated her like a daughter. Uh, they talked her up everywhere, all over oh, the yeah. neighborhood, oh, yeah. you know. So kind of as a formality, I guess, he thought, Casimir told his parents he wanted to marry Manya and the Poo hit the fan. <laughs> they just the total 180 on their personalities. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. That's marrying down. You need to either marry up or you can move out and we'll stop paying for your education. That's you the- need to marry into the nobility or at least money. People don't marry governesses. No. That is a funny joke, Casimir. Do not tell me another one. Yeah, it's just a summer fling. So... The family pressure was just too much. He let it go. He let it go. And here's Manya, trapped, because, you know, you still have to send Bronnie the money. And she's got a contract with the family for three years, and this was only a year in. I think she was saved from being let go because, really, if you think about it, there had been no confrontation between her or conversation even between her and the parents about this. I think they could treat it as if Casimir came in secret and 
farted uh-huh. <laughs> and they opened the window That's and right. let that go. <laughs> the end. We don't have to speak of this yeah. again. Well, Manu went to this classic for her depression spiral a little and her letters get filled with phrases like, my potential has been wasted. I pin all of my hopes on you and my brother, Branya. I'll, I'll never get to university. I despair about myself. Her books were old. There weren't enough of them. She was trying to learn chemistry out of a dang book, which I guess is like reading about cooking instead of cooking. cooking. (laughs) Out in Paris, her sister was getting married to a man that couldn't set foot back in Poland because he was on a list. Because he'd run afoul of the Russians. Mm -hmm. So Manya was going to have to be the one to go look after Papa, I guess. And I'm like, isn't there another sister? And in every letter, they're like, well, you know, hell is no good at taking care of anyone. It's like, she's legally blonde or something? Yeah, yeah, she was number two in the class, so we can't really I know, but they they treat her like... (laughs) Did you find anything that talked about why she was... No. Why she was black-sheeped, kind of? I mean... What is the second place called? Salutatorian? Uh Uh-huh. What's a girl got to do? I guess be number one, or you're not going to make it in this family. Well, anyway, Manya was all, you know, Depeche Mode gothing. I never have any luck. I, uh. So she went back for a year to live with her father. And the floating university people did give her a bit of luck. Hidden behind the facade of the Museum of Industry and Agriculture. If you're a Russian, you observe the sign and the dog yawn comes. You know that yawn? You can't. Your mouth opens to the extent that it can. Like, (laughs) I don't even need to inspect that. That's right. Behind the scenes, though, of that museum was a real laboratory. (laughs) And she had a relative that worked there. So she was able to work with him. And he taught her how to use the chemistry lab, how to use the equipment, how to do experiments, how to do research in a lab. All things that up to this point were just... Um, theoretical to her, but she was actually getting hands on. You know, I think when I was like reading this part, I'm like, she's like getting confidence in her, in her career and her occupation. She knows what she wants to do now. I mean, she's, she's in the lab and that's her place. The whole emo thing falls away. Yep. Well, and I have to say, Sometimes she would blow things up. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, she but would you learn a lot when you blow things up. That's true. You learn a lot. I mean, I garden. When I kill a plant, I learn a lot. I consider it, you know, money well spent because I know more about that plant now. You know how sometimes somebody just picks up a guitar and just knows or takes up ballet and it's a passion. You get high. When you mm -hmm. do something that you know you were meant to do, that everything in your life was meant to do this one thing, you get high from it. And that's what she's getting. Age 24, she has got her calling. Brian, was ready. Finally, come to Paris. Okay, it's time. It's your turn. And- With Papa's blessing, Papa is not going to let some misguided sense of martyrdom, Mm -hmm. nationalistic martyrdom, keep his daughter on duty. I mean, I'm not living with the repercussions of that. (laughs) No, thank you. It's like all those parents when their kids are seniors and they don't want you don't want them to go away to college, but you can't live with them anymore. You know you can't. You're holding them back, so you got to let them go. It's time. So, with Papa's blessing, she got on a fourth-class train carriage, basically an uninsulated luggage van with benches around the outside, although people in the know said, do not sit on those benches unless you want rats to crawl on you, which you don't. So, you bring your own stool and you sit in the middle. (laughs) Yeah, that's rough rough travel right there. I mean, she's obviously a committed person. She's going to begin a new life. 
since she is starting this new life, this is probably a really good time for us to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what life in Paris is really like for her. Chapter 2 Manya, whose real name, remember, was Maria, registered at the Sorbonne as Marie Sklodowska, one of only 23 women students in the mm, approximately 2,000 <gasps> students total in her college, which was called the Faculty of Sciences. Well, at first, Marie, as we'll call her from now on, oh, try... Can we just say Manya one more time? Because I just love that name so much. I'm going to have to get a pet and name it Manya. Okay, do it. Or maybe I'll just name my new computer Manya. Done. <laughs> So Marie tried to stay with her sister and her husband, who is another Casimir. <laughs> her brother-in-law was sort of a joyful pain in the hiney, I must say. He's always at her, like, um, you know, like, come out, there's a concert. I invited all these people to come meet you. We're drinking tea upstairs. We're going on a picnic. Hey, why are you reading in here? It's a nice day. I'm like, leave me alone. Okay, as an extrovert, I can tell you what that is. It's an extrovert trying to live with an introvert and not realizing that's what they are. Well, he's friendly, but you can't get a thing done if he is in no. your face all the time. So she speaks French fluently, but she doesn't think she has the accent down right. So she wants to practice that. She wants to catch up on everything that she didn't get in her floating university that is coming up at the Sorbonne. She wants to study. I have to tell you, I feel a lot of solidarity with her because I have an only child and I have a spouse who is mostly at work. So my whole day goes like this. Let's jump on the trampoline. Look at my video. Will you take me to the skate park? Let's go Pokemon hunting. Marie, I know you hate to be the grump that is like, no, no, no. But like, you have to get some work done. That's right. That's why you're there. But it's your dream. But you're torn because like, oh, okay. I do love you. You're awesome. I want to please you, but you're exhausting me. <laughs> so we're removed. She moved to a cheap apartment, uh, six floors up, at the very tip top of an apartment building. And I have to say, the description of this apartment reminds me of the apartment in Ratatouille. Oh, yes. I didn't think of that. But now, yeah. she doesn't have a view of the brand new Eiffel Tower. Ratatouille is set in Montmartre. Mm -hmm. So you can get a little view. Yeah. Also, there were a lot more windows in that one than I think Marie had. But um, it's a tiny, 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 tiny apartment. Less than 200 square feet. Tiny bed, one table, one chair, one pot, one fork, one spoon. You had to fill a bucket down a couple flights on the landing out of a random faucet sticking out of the wall if you wanted any water at all. But she grew up sleeping in the dining room. I know. I, this is, she was so happy here. She was able to like focus on her studies. The Her classes were not that far away. She was very close. She was so happy in her little garret. <laughs> there is, um, I think I saw it in apartment therapy. I'll have to find it. They rent these apartments still. They're called Chambre de Bon. It's like maid houses for the apartments down below. Oh, uh-huh. It's kind of what their original purpose was. They are so small, but Paris is so expensive okay. that people are moving in there. And it's just a marvel of space efficiency. It's like, actually very like well done. Those tiny houses. It's a tiny house, but in a building. In and the toilet is still down the hall. In a very old building. <laughs> yeah. So she lived on bread and butter and tea, mostly. If things were in season, i.e. cheap, she might get cherries, um, fruit, radishes. How do radish farmers ever make a living, even now? Aren't they like 37 cents a bundle? How many radishes do you have to pull out of the ground to make a dollar? I got nothing. I, I don't, don't even know. know. And she had never learned to cook. So this little, you know, grab this and that and the other thing, was it worked for her until she collapsed because she hadn't had enough to eat. 
So she'd go and stay at Branya's house, and Branya would fatten her up with steak and potatoes and send her back to her garret. What well, she could learn all day. So off with her overalls, you know, his big coverall that you wore in the lab all day, and then back home to read and study until the sun went down, and then she would decamp off to the library so she wouldn't have to spend money on lamp oil. And then when the library closed, she'd come back, oh, unwillingly light that lamp up till two in the morning. And then finally go to sleep. So she's living on no sleep, maybe an egg a week. Splurge, you have a square of chocolate. Mm -hmm. I mean, and nothing else. But, you know, the light was burning in her head. (laughs) She was so grateful for the opportunity. Um, Really, she kept to herself. She made very few friends. And it might seem lonely to you and me. Actually, maybe just to you. Because I get it. But Murray thrived on it. She, She fainted from lack of food. And once was so cold in her unheated room that she slept in all her clothes that she owned out of the drawers, too, and the table on top of her and the chair on top of her because there's nothing else to move to put on your towel. But what do physical hardships matter when there is such knowledge to be had? That's a theme for the rest of her life. The world of science opened up to me, she said, which I was at last permitted to know in all of its glory. Just when someone has been starved for opportunity, mm-hmm. who cares about your stomach growling? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. At 26, Marie received the equivalent of a master's degree in physics, the first in her class and one of only two women total. Mm-hmm. A friend in Poland kind of, I have to say, bullied the authorities. I don't know if she, what she had on somebody, but I don't know. But she bullied them into giving Marie a scholarship to return for another degree the next year. Like, one's not enough. We gotta go back. Let her go. So she got also a paid gig to study... Oh, this seems dry to me. Dry. Oh. <laughs> She's studying the magnetic properties of steel and other metals. It's kind of like a work-study job. Yeah, just enough. Just yeah. enough to let her go back to school. So here is the frustrating thing, though. The experiments she needed to do for the paid gig required space and lots of materials and big equipment. So what was a scientist on a budget to do? Uh-huh. I know a guy, said a science friend of hers. Well, here's the thing. You know what? In any city, any industry, you know the people in the industry, even yeah. if you're in competition. Yeah. The science industry in Paris was like that. So you could be connected to a lot of different people by just telling one. Yeah. So, and they knew each other. They all knew each other. Well, and this guy, the guy, her friend knew was actually, although France didn't seem to appreciate him, a famous scientist. One of his discoveries about how to measure small, very small units of electricity, super theoretical, because who needed to measure small units of electricity? (laughs) Nobody. So this machine, while fabulous, wasn't so practical, but it was used by researchers all over the world now, starting mm-hmm. to be like, oh, we're starting to get it just now. And he's the guy that had made it. And his work on crystal symmetry, I mean, <laughs> so if you've ever seen your baby on an ultrasound, mm-hmm. you have Pierre Curie to thank. If you've ever had a quartz watch, uh, an electric igniter, like on your furnace, uh, he's touched you. In some way. I have to tell you, all dotted through my notes, I have... Becca could probably explain the science better than I can. <laughs> I feel nervous about the science, actually. I like, feel like like when I see a violin player on a movie, mm-hmm. and I'm always like, can you not get a fourth grader to show you how to do the bow? So please, scientists, just know, I make no pretensions to play this violin. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what the violin is. Yeah. So talk about... 
magnetic experiments. Pierre was sitting in a bow window when Marie came in, and oh my. Magnetism. (laughs) For both of them, kind of an initial physical attraction, a little spark. I assure you, both of them were super inexperienced romantically. Oh, yeah. They each had the one great love. Theoretically. And they both had given up on romance. They're like, that it doesn't have a place in my life. It's like, Sheldon Cooper, meet Amy Farrah Fowler. Is that Big Bang Theory? Yeah. Are you so proud of me? I am. There's an attraction, but they're not, uh, I don't know, should we work on it? I don't know. But here's the thing. He had sworn off women, and he was kind of a little, you know, It's he's a man, you know. And he's thinking women aren't going to be able to, he's not going to find a woman that can understand him. But she starts talking to him in his language. You know, I'm not talking French. I'm talking science. They're, being, they're able to communicate in a way that no other people would be able to. Plus, she's really adorable. I have a picture here of, okay, the friend that I knew a guy friend. This mm-hmm. is his house. Yeah. I totally think as those two scientists sitting in the bow window start nerding out and exchanging ideas <laughs> as if other people might exchange kisses, yeah. I can see that guy looking at his wife, nodding and clinking a glass because Pierre did not have a lab. Was this matchmaking? <laughs> like, oh, do I have the girl for this guy? I don't know. I, yeah, I wondered the same thing because you would have thought he would have known if the lab situation that Pierre didn't have. Well, this friend that had set them up, however, accidentally or on purpose, um, said they are honest and simple, both of them. And that is why this worked so well. Mm-hmm. So a bit, a tiny bit. This is like a tiny background on Mr. Curie, Pierre. He was one of the two sons of a doctor and his wife. I have to say kind of unconventional upbringing. The French school system is pretty harsh, pretty regimented. You will sit, madame, or monsieur will Parl, you know, at you, and you will shut your face mm-hmm. in the end. There's no of this getting up, walking around. There's none of this, you know, experimenting. No, I tell you what goes in your head. You write it down the end. His parents were like, that is not going to work for him. He needs to move around. He needs to work with his hands. And so they also taught him at home. Papa did. Mm-hmm. He was allowed to experiment and learn at his own pace. He entered the Sorbonne at 16. Oh, he graduated at 18. He's like Spencer Reed from Criminal Minds. He's just absorbing all this information super fast. And you don't know Criminal Minds either, do you? No. All right. I'm not the TV watcher of the group. <laughs> I'm still proud it's of myself. Super for violent. It's oh really, well. Yeah. Sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, this guy is seriously handsome. I, you know, mm-hmm. oh, look at the photo. He was dreamy. I, I thought. He'd been badly burned Mm -hmm. by love Mm -hmm. one time, and that was it. And so this was a great surprise, and they began to see quite a lot of each other. He called in at the lab that she had finally found to work in, um, in her glorious, wrinkled-up old work outfits. So it must have been love. So he called into her apartment. What? (gasps) Where she lives alone. That's scandalous. But it's in the Latin Quarter, so men visit women's apartments all the time. Well, and I was going to say, at 26 (laughs) and 35, you might get a pass. Yeah, maybe. Uh, All she said was they drank tea and talked the night away. And as they say, is that what the kids are calling it these days? (laughs) I'm just kidding. They likely talked all night because that's how they are. (laughs) With paper and, like, scribbling notes and diagrams and, yeah. Within the year... Marie got a second degree in mathematics. And, you know, it is now officially time to go home and work for a better poet. She had said she meant that all along. That was her goal. Right. 
Um, and Pierre asked her to marry him. Uh, but she was torn. She couldn't abandon Poland. Could she? I mean, so really, it was a big problem for her. Actually, his mother told Branya, there isn't a soul on earth equal to my Pierre. Don't let your sister hesitate. It's like, he's a catch. She needs to catch him. Well, she did go back to Poland without making any promises. And this is how historians have the letters. The letters he wrote to her to persuade her to come back. And she, in her autobiography, said that this was a very persuasive sentence. He said, It would be a fine thing in which I hardly dare to believe to pass our lives near each other, hypnotized by our dreams, your patriotic one, our humanitarian one, and our scientific one. Swoon. I guess that's the language of romance to a scientist. <laughs> it took almost a year and honestly, a kind but blunt letter echoing a lot of what her father had said years ago that said, you know, it's better if you're a scientist in France than a martyred and bitter school teacher here in Poland, Marie. If you're going to feel broken by the sacrifice of your whole life coming back, by all means, stay in France. <laughs> I mean, he, I'm paraphrasing. He said yeah, it much yeah. more diplomatically, but... Everyone's like, you don't have to kill yourself on the altar of Poland. Right. Just do what you can from there. It's fine. Right. It's fine. <laughs> Worlds will keep turning. Yes, that's right. But at last, at last, on July 26th, 1895, at a wedding in the courthouse, as both of them were atheists, Marie Sklodowska became Madame Pierre Curie, wearing a practical navy blue suit that would be useful for later. Even though Pierre's mother offered to buy her a fine wedding dress from a boutique, she's like, mm, I could just wear this one. In that particular scenario was dotted throughout her life. The women around her were like, let's get you a pretty dress for this. And she's like, no, I need a new dress, but it has to be functional in the lab. Later. Yeah. And speaking of functionality, for their honeymoon, they went on a bike tour of the countryside of France. And there's this picture of the two of them. And she actually looks like you know, girlified. She's got the hat with the flowers. She's wearing these jodhpurs that are like pants split so she could ride the bike. Function. Then she has those giant leg of mutton sleeves. So somebody <laughs> fashionable must have got a hold of her. <laughs> there was flowers on her handlebars. It's pretty cute. No reservations. Um, no real plans. You know, let's go tromp around in the wet grass or up a mountain. And whenever we get tired, we'll rest. You know, whenever we're hungry, we'll eat and we'll discuss science the whole time. For every sock, there is a shoe, is okay. what I have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of socks and shoes, did what did they do? Did they keep that? Because well, I only saw the one picture, and there's no, like, saddlebags on the bikes. So did they have luggage? Did they send it ahead? How, I, I, I'm sorry. I wish I had the answer to this. I don't know. They're biking all day in these heavy clothes. They're going to stink to high heaven. I don't know the answer to that. I'm sure there was some kind of haversack. Yeah, but how much can you fit? You know, every movie, I've always wondered this. People show up, and they have the tiny handbag suitcase. Uh-huh. So evidently, they either have the one dress, and the suitcase merely has undergarments in it, mm-hmm. which is probably what it is, and you can crumple those up into the little suitcase. Right. Or they have trunks sent ahead somewhere. I mean, Nellie Bly did it with the one handbag. Oh, she ever was considered a wacko even then. Like, you're just going to go with this one little bag? Okay. <laughs> Practical question, unanswerable. Married life started up again, this time at... Why did I write that? I have her addresses. I always write down her addresses if I have them, maybe so I can Google Street View them. Oh. Anyway, um, you don't have to know what it is. I'll put it on the website, I guess. <laughs> but Pierre got a doctorate 
and an increased salary. And Marie was working on her magnetism, you know, experiments, and also a teaching certificate. So she'd have the opportunity to earn some money that way. All of the housework fell to her, of course, and all the cooking. You know, fair enough, you can swim over here in a man's world at the lab, but don't expect your husband to hop into women's work and all of that. Oh, oh no, no. They had, they did have a woman that came in occasionally and helped her but for the most part she was it they called it doing the rough like somebody mucked them out washed everything (laughs) turned everything but like day to day here's you know this is so characteristic of her she spent some time days worth of experiments calculating the exact height of the flame on the stove that would cook x amount of liquid (laughs) in x amount of time so she could set dinner in the morning before she left my kingdom for a crock pot i know right and so she could, you know, do that before she left. And she'd set it exactly at the right height, measure it, uh-huh. and then take off. But so realize she had to learn how to cook, too, because she hadn't been cooking. Yeah, yeah. It's- She's a French mother-in-law, hey. so that's pressure. Yeah, she gave her lessons. I don't, I don't know. know. Well, she had no rug, no knickknacks. No one has time for that. No minimalist. Yeah, but who cares? You know, they didn't care. They loved to work together. And Pierre once said that they were the happiest in the world when they were apart from all other human beings. And so it was, until, at 30, Marie and Pierre had a baby. She did Pierre's father, because he was a doctor, caught. Uh, that, mm, I cannot <laughs> get over that. I love my father-in-law. I, yeah. I don't necessarily need to present him with that viewpoint. No. I Shall we say. I agree, but, you know, she's practical. He's a doctor. <laughs> He's in the family. This is science. It's, it's nature doing its thing. Marie clenched her teeth. She didn't even scream out, according to reports, um, and gave birth to a six-pound girl, Irene. Here we go again. It's the mother's sole responsibility because it's a baby, right? And Maria tried to keep up the pace, and she was getting paid for the steel experiments after all. She would breastfeed as long as she could and then had to hire not only a wet nurse, which just to be able to have a few hours of work together in a line She had to hire a nanny also. And I'm very sorry to say that she felt like a complete failure because of it. I'm very sorry to say that no one is immune from that. No. Pierre felt no such tension. Not at all. Now, she's also, again, she's kind of spiraling into another one of those situational depressions during this time. So she's trying to learn everything there is to learn about the baby and keep the house going. It's, It's a lot. Well, and she would get these feelings of dread. She'd be at work, and then all of a sudden she'd just drop everything and rush home, just, you know, just sure the nanny had lost the baby, who, of course, was fine. Nannies don't panic attack. Lose the baby, typically. She was very distracted, and she felt like, (laughs) this sounds so familiar, she felt like she wasn't giving good attention to any part of her life, which I'm sure all working mothers can relate to. Mm Mm-hmm. Doctors were not familiar with the stresses of work-life balance. Why would they be? Because there's, you know, such a small percentage of women in the upper and middle classes who were working. I will say poor women all the time. You have to keep saying it's a privileged class of women who have have still the opportunity to complain about work-life balance, but whatever. So they recommended that she be sent to a sanatorium. And, you know, up until this minute... I always thought that word was related to sanitary, but a sanatorium for sanity? Or is it sanitary? I always thought sanity. And I always thought... Clean. Weird. Okay, wow. Oh. There's something. There's a brain cell that's recently been activated. <laughs> well, all she needed, all many she's need, if you're asking, is some freaking help. Mm-hmm. Uh, whew. Okay, so Pierre's father, Grandpa Kiri, we'll call him, 
has recently lost his wife. They had been a pretty close family growing up, and Grandpa offered to live with them and kind of be the family CEO. I guess <laughs> he's not going to wash dishes or anything. I don't think. I don't know. You never know what people do in behind closed doors. And they were a little unconventional as a family. It, they're kind of tra- trailblazing for themselves. They're making things work the way they're going to work for that family. But then he wouldn't be alone. He wouldn't be lonesome. It was a win-win, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Uh, and so they moved to a little bigger house, and the domestic pressure was off Marie. So all of this, all this we've been talking about for the last, what, 45 minutes, an hour, seems <laughs> like a prelude to the real story, sort of, doesn't it? The thing you know about Marie Curie hasn't even reared its head yet, has it? Nope. Has but not. The trail has been blazed, and the tools have been gotten. Yeah, so I wrote, do we ever get to all the science? Okay, here we go. And I put, let Beckett explain the science of (laughs) x-rays. Okay, here we go. So it was time for Marie to get a doctorate. But to do that, you had to come up with some kind of discovery or a novel way of doing something. And so she's reading all these scientific texts and papers for inspiration, and two bodies of work kind of stuck out to her as something she might follow up on. Professor Wilhelm Röntgen had discovered a new type of ray, or more accurately for the scientists among you, produced, then detected the rays. <laughs> I understand that's very critical difference. Okay. Discovered important. or not. Important. Scientists don't write me. I'll, I'll give you a link to a clearer description of the process, if that's your thing. You have to look at the first actual x-ray photo taken of a person. It's Mrs. Röntgen's hand with its ring, Super creepy picture, which made her shriek and say that she had just seen a shadow of her own death. Well, she got 1,500 times the radiation that you and I would get today. So, yes, you had, but not in the way that you think. (laughs) Anyway, I would love that image on a shirt. Making note to Google that later. It might be. It's pretty cool. So x-rays, they got into the public consciousness. We're going to look at our feet and our shoes. Oh, we can find where bullets are in a wound. We can look through the walls like big perfs. I mean, (laughs) x-rays were super science fiction-y. And the photo was epic. And the photo is critical. Let's just say x-rays equal, oh my God, that's a stuff. Come on, fancy. So another scientist, Henry Becquerel, followed up on this work. And he hypothesized x-rays were somehow related to phosphorescence, where you basically expose something to one kind of light and it gives off a different kind of light, like glow-in-the-dark star stickers. I knew you'd have a a good explanation. So he wanted to see if he could make x-rays without the electricity, because x-rays required something to be triggered with, with electricity. So uranium, he thought he'd work with because it was phosphorescent. And he thought at first you had to expose it to the light to get it to release this energy he was trying to measure. So he has... You know, chunks of uranium on the windowsill. Um, and ultimately, it came to him that there was something about the uranium itself that was releasing measurable energy. Not x-rays. Huh. Some other kind of ray. Radioactivity. Though he didn't call it that, and he didn't know it was radioactivity That's yet. right. It's something. But there's no cool photo of someone's hand with these kind of rays. Mm. There's just fuzzy, sort of random shapes. There's no jazz. There's no super fun visual aids like x-rays had. And research into these Becquerel rays just kind of tapered off. Well, yeah, and he had problems with it because the tools were too fine for him to work with. Every time he tried to measure something with the electrometer, he couldn't. He just couldn't get it to work. So it was too frustrating. There wasn't any support, and it was kind of petered out. Yeah. So 
So Marie was inspired by Becca Rowe's work, and she thought, uh, now here, here is a subject with some open space for me. Where was the energy coming from? And how? So she thought, I am going to explain Becquerel's rays. That's my doctorate thesis right there. She got a hold of his face, kind of a horrible space aesthetically. You know, that makes no difference to her. Kind of this big abandoned machine shed with a whole bunch of wrecked up machinery and furniture in it, unheated, except for a little stove she brought in that mostly just made an orange light to look at, because honestly... (laughs) You couldn't heat the place. There's too many holes. No. Holes in the roof. Yeah. (laughs) But you know Marie doesn't care. So drag some tables over and level them up. I don't care. So at first, she wasn't quite sure where she... You know, where am I going to go with this? So let's just get a whole bunch of samples of different material. She said she's going to test every material. (laughs) Okay. She tested a lot of them. Yes, she did. But uh, she's going to see if they have the properties that she's looking for. You know, narrow down... The focus. Let's see what gives off the rays first. That's step one. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? Like, I don't know. Well, x-rays and Becquerel rays both make the air conduct electricity. And hey, didn't my own husband invent a machine that could measure small amounts of electricity? It's as if the fates put them together. I'm serious. It's freaking me out. Oh, and she could make it work. Because he trained her. I understand, but it required yep. some a physical uh, ability. And yep. That thing that she did as a kid, block things out and be able to hold the pose and study, mm-hmm. that's what she needed. Well, her tool is called a piezoelectric quartz electrometer. And honestly, Pierre was so happy that she was using his thing. <laughs> he could help her get her doctorate. And he tinkered and he worked on it for her and tailored it to the way that she worked. And it was fate. And long story short, there is a mineral called pitchblende that was about four times more radioactive. That's Marie's term, by the way, radioactivity. That song kept going in my head. Radioactive. What's that? Imagine Dragons? Yeah, it's a new one. Well, it's more radioactive than it should have been, all other things being equal. And they... Pierre and Marie discovered a new element, which Marie named polonium after her homeland in July of 1898. So imagine the periodic table that we have now. There was a hole in it, and now there's polonium. Polonium is used for heat in space travel. That's pretty much not anything else, except for there was a Russian spy that was assassinated with polonium. Litvinenko. Really? How? Did they make it into a bullet? Uh, I think they put it in his tea. Oh. Anyway, it's a brand new element, number 84, on the charts. So after a long vacation, because the Curies were feeling sort of run down and sort of sick, they needed the fresh air, they thought, or maybe to be exposed to less radiation, you think, but nobody knew that yet. No. Back to the lab, they followed their measurements to yet another new element, radium. The Curies named it 900 times more radioactive than uranium. I'm so sorry. That song, speaking of songs, that song, Meet the Elements, is going through my head by, oh my gosh, you don't know it. They might be giants. They've got a whole album called This Might Be Sun. Okay. Combine to form a chemical compound or stand alone as they are. Come on and meet my friends, the elements. No? Okay. They also have another one called I Am a Paleontologist. That one I think I've heard. Okay, now you've definitely heard this one. This is the most popular thing. Okay. The sun is a mass of incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear (laughs) furnace where hydrogen is made into helium at a temperature of millions of degrees. Yes? 
What? Do I have that written down? I do not. Also, no, I didn't. You do not. I did not sing that very well. Sorry, they might be giants. We'll have to give you a link to the real one. <laughs> but they had found these elements sort of mathematically. You know, where were the specimens? The isolated chunks of polonium and radium. They were needed as proof, kind of as part of the part of the package. It hadn't been seen or weighed. Physicists were fine with this level of proof, might I say. Chemists were not fine with this level of proof. I don't know what this says about physicists and chemists. Chemists work with stuff. Physicists work with properties paper? of stuff. I don't know. So they've discovered the two elements. That's not epic enough. Evidently, on to the groundbreaking assertion of Marie Curie's that radioactivity probably comes from within the element itself. Uh, it's not any outside force. The atoms are not just little Lego building blocks put together in different ways, but maybe more like little machines, mm-hmm. which freaking blew everyone's mind. Like, it really destroyed a lot of theory. Like the scientists love that. And I, she didn't get this far, but she opened up the research into, because her theory was, and she hadn't tested it, the theory is it's a property inside the atom, which really went against hundreds of years of, of science, thinking it was just little balls, mm-hmm. you know, little little building blocks. Anyway, polonium was very squirrely to get a hold of. Later, scientists discovered that it decayed so quickly, it was like just over 100 days. It's like kind of too fast for Marie and Pierre to get a hold of it. Right. Um, right then. They never managed to isolate that one, but radium was another matter. But to get the radium was a long-term project. It wasn't like just chunk up this rock and find it. Yeah, the bad news is pitch blend is 99.99999% not radium. <laughs> I hope that's enough nine. We're going to need a bigger boat. You know, know. We're going to need a bigger old shop is what it is. And they had to get, this one used to be where med students used to dissect their cadavers during anatomy class. So at least it had a scientific history. That's true. Also unheated, also holes in the roof. If you're going to be precision scientists, this is not ideal. So the patience required for this process is really epic. So they had to get tons and tons and tons of this pitch blend from an industrial place that just wanted the uranium out and sort of couldn't believe their luck when someone came calling and wanted to basically take their trash. Win, win. You pay to take it away. Here you go. Well, I don't know what you want it for. That's right. Um, so what did they need the uranium for, you might ask, since they didn't have atomic weapons or power plants or anything? Here's what they needed it for, uranium glass. Some of you might collect it. It's also known as Vaseline glass. It glows green in black light. Super cool. But they've been doing that since the Roman times. It's not new. People didn't know that it was radioactive. It just was so super cool. It made a nice yellow color in regular light. Even old Fiesta wear, by the way, has uranium in the glaze, especially the old, the red-orange. Really? And the ivory color. The old huh. Fiesta wear has uranium. Wow. Not enough, well, I, don't, I don't think, to be killing you. But then again, the Elizabethans ate off pewter and lead, and that didn't do so well for them. So don't eat off red and ivory Fiesta wear if it's old. Old. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. A little public service announcement for me to you. So at first they did all the work themselves because they had to. Something like seven processes, some of which had to be done multiple times. So you're looking at 10 different things you have to do to each pound of dust. Different chemicals took out or added different things mm-hmm. so you could get to the end result. Well, eventually they had to outsource the first few steps because the mechanical stuff dudes with overalls could do. Please, let's just get like st- the middle steps where mm-hmm. you need an actual scientist because <laughs> this is killing us with this carrying around of all this dirt. A lot of people came to volunteer because, you know, like you said, scientific community, just like the restaurant community, you know, a guy, mm-hmm. hey, oh my gosh, I need someone to cover this shift. 
Yeah. Your friend, the scientist, comes in and helps. One of those scientists actually discovered another element on their premises called actinium. Can you believe that? That's exciting. It's when it's exciting. I mean, if that's your thing, that's well, exciting. Well, yeah. I mean, they're, they're filling in the periodic table. That's come on, cool. come on, and meet the elements. Sam, let's sing it again. <laughs> All the pictures you see are of Marie serenely holding up a test tube. But here's what they don't show you. The small child who wanted her May all the time. The dinners to be made of radioactive ingredients, I assume, as radioactivity clings to you yep. and goes where you go. Uh, Marie made her and Irene's clothes. Both Pierre and Marie had to teach just to get by financially. Yeah, financially, they needed they needed income. I mean, this is not a free project. So he was teaching at the Sorbonne in the School of Science. And Marie actually got a job teaching at a boarding school for teen girls. The objective of the school was to teach female teachers, but Marie was the first female teacher they'd had. Kind of meta. Yeah, yeah, kind of. And she, but they loved her. Her students loved her because she explained things. She showed them. It wasn't all theory. You know, it was practical. She brought in equipment. Yeah. Tools. Show and tell. How cool is that? And, you know, we talked about the French educational system being sit in your seat, madame will speak, the end. There's none of this interaction, and she doesn't know from that. You no, know, she's so she, not speaking. She's asking questions Yeah, that she knows the answer to, but, you know, what's going to happen if I do this? But what we should take from all this is that the radium had to fit into the cracks of their lives, like podcasting. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, also, Irene hated the lab. She called it that sad place. Ironic, given her future career. We'll talk about that in part yeah. two. And she wondered why her mother wasn't home, like everyone else's mother. I mean, like, ah, the guilt. I swear to you, you just don't know. You just don't know. At one point, Pierre was even so tired. Like, can we just can we just go back to theories and measurements and properties? You're you're killing yourself with this. She was, but not the way he meant. <laughs> but Marie was determined. She was going to see this thing. She was going to see it. And one day they had it. Four years after its discovery, almost. It's nineteen. It's March twenty eighth, nineteen o two, and Marie makes an entry into her lab journal. R A equals two two five point nine three. The weight of an atom of radium. Yeah, it was one decigram of radium. So a tenth of, say, a medium paperclip weight. At last, a measurable undeniable pure sample of radium glowing pale blue in the dark lab i mean that's like they had a choir of angels in the background it would be that's the visual equivalent of it it's glowing and now with that triumph it's time to take a little break and when we come back we will see where radium takes the curies Chapter 3. So radium, that glowing blue angel in the darkness, caught the imagination of the public. I can't even think of a modern equivalent. It glowed. It was magically able to send invisible rays out from itself. It made other elements out of its own self. Like that's where helium came from. Alchemy. Alchemy. <laughs> Just the romance of the whole thing. I know. Right? Um and scientists could not stop bombarding the Curies with requests for lessons, advice, a piece of radium, a, a signature, an autograph. <laughs> Doctors had seized on its power to burn away damaged skin or tissues and wanted to experiment with it as a possible cure for cancer. There's a humanitarian goal for you, Curies. 
A letter came from America, and plans were afoot to produce radium on an industrial scale. So can we use your methods, please? That's cheek. That's chutzpah. <laughs> and the Curies were writing papers that were getting published in scientific journals all along. That's how the science community works. So I, maybe they could have plugged it together, but I guess, yeah, to ask them, hey, can I have that? Thanks. Pierre and Marie had to have a serious conversation about this. You know, do we take out a patent on this? No one can deny their right to claim it as a discovery, right? right? I mean, it means security. It would mean a giant lab, if that's what they wanted. Super bicycles, if that's <laughs> anything they wanted, you know. You know what? I'm just going to plug this in. The one thing that they did all the time is they had fresh flowers in the house. Mm-hmm. So they could buy more flowers. They decided together that it was against the spirit of science to keep it for themselves. And they basically decided to publish the details of their research, basically open source their methodology. They uh, So that was super generous of them. They could have been set for life. It was fitting with their, with their mission in life is to use science to improve humanity. Although <laughs> putting radium in products consumed by individuals may not be the best thing to do. But they didn't know that at the time because they were still doing research on it. So a rocky time. Papa, her papa, had died during this period. Marie had suffered a miscarriage. But Marie Curie did get her doctorate. She was a doctor of physical sciences with distinction, the first woman in France to do so. Awards and invitations were coming in from all sides, from countries all over the world. In fact, she got a very prestigious medal from England, didn't know what to do with it, and they gave it to Irene to play with. <laughs> this is how much they're valuing these things. Um, hmm. If there was a check with it, they would have appreciated that, and they would have put that in the right place. But Well, America, other countries were offering to set up whole lecture series, and you know, name your price for this. We're so excited to have you. And they're like, no way, no thank you, not interested. That must be so frustrating if you're a guy trying to set up a lecture series, and all you're like, mm, no. The yeah. one guy, the one get. You're the producer, and you can't get the one get. <laughs> of course he's going to. Why wouldn't he want to come? Then a letter came from one of the members of the Swedish Academy of Science. That's the Nobel Committee on the DL. He said basically, hey, shh, hey, Pierre, Mr. Curie, the Nobel Prize Committee wants to award you and Becquerel the Nobel Prize in Physics. You, I mean, Pierre. Somebody's missing from this equation. The committee's wording was so suspect. These two men worked together and separately to procure with great difficulty this precious material. Their informant was a mathematician who was not down with this. He wanted Pierre to be alerted. Even though the whole world knew about Marie Curie and her involvement, the whole world knew. Were they going to treat her as if she were his assistant? They were planning to. Well, they also had gotten a letter from some people in the in the French scientific community saying that Pierre had done the work, leaving her out completely. The man who was her doctoral advisor was one of the, I say, kind of traitors. Mm-hmm. They were going to treat her like a nothing. And so... That's why this man wrote to them, because I got to tell you ahead of time, and Pierre's like, well, of course I'll turn it down. Right. If her name's not on it. Okay, and now I have a weapon, because how embarrassing would that be? Because they can't nominate Becquerel without you. Mm-hmm. Right. And if Marie's not there, they can't have you, and they can't have, okay, I can work this out. Becquerel, by the way, in case you've forgotten from part two, is the, the new Ray man, the after X-ray man. So characteristically, after Marie's name was on there, begrudgingly, whatever. <laughs> I think she had some fans on the inside that uh, found yeah. a loophole to get her in. Yes. 
So they were invited to King Oscar's reception and they turned it down, which makes me laugh so much. But I will tell you, the announcement was a little suspect, I think. Get the wording of the announcement at the reception to which neither of them were there. The great success of Professor and Madame Curie, stop right there. She is a doctor also. Right. But she's Madame. Makes us look at God's word in a new light. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helpmeet for him. Gross. Oh my gosh. So they're still, even in the award speech, trying to make her nothing but his assistant. So anyway, Marie Curie was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize, however grudgingly given. (laughs) But she had it. The 1903 prize, the one we just talked about, was for physics, for radioactivity, for the rays, for the properties, not radium or polonium. No mention of it. There were still doubters among the chemists that these elements even existed. I don't know what it's going to take. There might have been doubters among the chemists, but the press loved it. It was They were swarmed. If, if they had this image of themselves you know, going back quietly to their work, it, it's gone. That life is over. They are superstars in, in the city. Well, it was a very romantic story. A beautiful poor girl, the struggle against oppression, Prince Charming working in the night, finding stardust in the rock. Come on. That's a story for you. That's like Star-Crossed Lovers from District 12. The public, who doesn't know anything about radium, no, loves not. this story. There's a lot of good fairy tale elements in it. Uh, there was a caricature in Vanity Fair, the British Vanity Fair magazine, of the two of them together. And he is in the front holding this glowing vial, and she's behind him. Like, oh, dear, that's lovely, the thing that you created. That's the image that the press is spreading around. Well, Marie spent the prize money, of which there was a lot, on presents, scholarships for poor students, a giant cash gift to the sanatorium that her sister and brother-in-law, Casimir, I love him, (laughs) they're both doctors. They set up a sanatorium, you know, big donation to that, and a brand new bathroom for herself. So practical. I love that. And more employees, even more practical. You know what? Me too. More employees. Yeah. Let's have those. So speaking of that, France, after all this attention to these two scientists, who were, after all, French, looking around, they're not in very good positions, academically, socially, in the hierarchy of... And it's kind of embarrassing. Like, yeah. oh, wait, we haven't given them... Our time. national heroes are just putting in a bathroom? And he's a just a teacher? So Pierre, not Marie, was named to a new chair, a new professorship, shall we say, in science at the Sorbonne. Eventually with a laboratory. He played some hardball because they weren't going to give him a laboratory. And he's like, then I don't need you. Give me back my (laughs) cadaver factory or whatever. I have chairs. I don't need a new one. (laughs) (laughs) So a real laboratory. Just imagine what they could do in an actual laboratory. And um, so they gave him this professorship and hey, Madame Curie could officially work there as your assistant. I mean, they paid her a salary, but... Yeah, the money was good. The Academy of Sciences in France had rejected Pierre's application in the past, but suddenly he's accepted. Yes, you're totally mean to the nerds in high school until they make up Facebook or whatever, and all of a sudden you still want to be friends. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, ho, you kind of yeah. missed out. You should have been my friend all along. <laughs> the attention was really getting to both of them. There's a quote from Pierre that said, our lives are being spoiled with honor and glory, and they meant it. I mean, both of them are serious introverts. Not shy, but just people just exhaust her. Like, and they are in her face. What color's the little cat that's on the roof? Does Irene talk? What's her, what does she call you? Oh my gosh. Do we want to talk about radium? That's right. Like, 
these amazing scientific discoveries that I did. I, there's a reason I'm standing in the spotlight right now. You really want to talk to me about parenting? Which oh. isn't light, but still, it's not her thing. So, Almarie, if you think journalists exhaust you, just you wait. In 1904, the Curies' second daughter, Eve, was born. And she is one of those babies who want to be up, up, up. And it's easier to just carry them around. I had one of those. They get really good at holding on to the back of your shirt. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. She was born almost to the day, a year after the Nobel Prize was given to them. The Nobel Prize is always given on December 10th because it's the anniversary of Alfred Nobel's death. What do you know? I know. Radium was taking over commercially in all kinds of products, though not cancer treatment. Like that's the first thing you think radiation, cancer treatment. They were working on it, but it wasn't until about the 30s that radiation for cancer treatment really became kind of mainstream. So not that, not yet, but in products, I have to say quack products. Oh my goodness. There's a radium toothpaste to make your teeth glow, which reminded me of that episode of Friends where Ross gets his teeth whitened and all you can see on the screen is like his teeth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Skin cream, radium water. No, no, people do not ingest the radium. Socialites used to bring it out at parties out of their freaking handbags or vest pockets. Come on. And it's glowing. Anything that you would want to have a glow, they put it in. Like fabrics. Would you like a glowing dress? That would be awesome. Let's cover you in radium. My, the, the favorite one I had was there was a bag of radium that you would the man would place near his scrotum to increase his uh, virility and bring back vitality. Yikes. Well, people, I just don't know. Just because it tingles doesn't mean it's good for you. So Pierre had suffered quite a few burn injuries. And they healed in a longer period of time than regular burns. And then when they healed, they were like kind of gray, dead skin. Mm-hmm. Red flag, red flag. So they knew something was going on. They did not have any idea how serious it was. But And Marie got burned through a wooden box once. The mm-hmm. little tiny bit of radium was inside a wooden box and she got seriously burnt just through the stuff. So you cannot tell people anything, though. No. Yeah. It's shiny. I mean, it's they, awesome. The Curies had scars from their research all over their bodies, but nobody's looking at that. They're just like, let's make it glow. You know what? I could go back in time with a hundred blue glow sticks from U.S. Toy Company and make a Kelly. <laughs> How much would that cost me? $25? Tops. Maybe. Yeah. As long as they were blue, I could be like, hey, yo, socialite at the party, and I would be as safe as kittens, and I could charge $300 a piece for them. And they were in a blue, they were in a plastic vial because plastic really hadn't been invented yet. So I would, you would be the like a sorceress or something. I would get right into the VIP room, no matter what. I'd yeah. just hold up, how you like me now? I'm in. <laughs> Adding it to the list, by the way, we need to keep a time travel list of things to take back. Oh, yeah. Okay. Antibiotics, number one, yeah. obviously. Taser for Henry VIII. Tampons. Tampons. Yeah. Okay. We'll keep the list. (laughs) Our time travel machine is going to be well stocked. (laughs) With tampons and glow sticks. (laughs) It's a great party. So the Curies were doing well enough. Well enough, I guess. Financially, Mr. Curie gave the required Nobel Prize lecture years later. I might have been his choice. I don't know if they disinvited Marie or if she just... Let him take it because it wasn't her thing. It really isn't her thing, at least not yet. Um, but he, anyway, he took the opportunity from his bully pulpit to give her, her, her most of the credit in his speech, for which I like him very much. I liked him all along. I thought they were such a great pair. Now, he did mention that radioactivity might end up very dangerous in criminal hands. Criminals who are, for example, leading the people toward war. Prophetic statement. Yes. 
Both Carries were feeling pretty bad. Overwork, they thought. Radiation poisoning, we can see. Uh-huh. I do not begin to understand the mechanism, but as I understand it, I read somewhere that the body accepts radium as calcium. Like it thinks, oh, hi, friend, uh-huh. come on in. It doesn't put up the barriers that it would normally. If it was a foreign substance. Yeah, it, fe- it feels like storing it in your bones and yeah, stuff. Yeah, wherever calcium would go. So the worse Pierre felt, the more driven he seemed to be to work. You know, work, 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 work. I don't know if he sensed the end was near. He just wanted to get things done in his life, his bucket list, before he kicked it or whatever. But Marie was sort of taking a break from work anyway. She's making radioactive gooseberry jelly and sewing radioactive little girl in doll clothes and dusting her radioactive house. Uh, She had to make sure. Irene was getting a little older and she had to make sure that she was getting an education too. And she hadn't been around her mom when she was little, so she might have felt a little, you know, maternal guilt. It comes with the job, you know. So she took it. She took the time. Well, and she kept saying, please, just spend time with us. Spend time with us. And he, you know, of course, would be like, work, work, work. He is an unrepentant workaholic, and she has repented a Mm -hmm. little and is taking a break. So she didn't go to the lab with him every day anymore. And she even said, Pierre, if it wasn't for you, yourself, I might actually stop work. I've accomplished, I think, enough. I, (laughs) you know, and it was really 20 years of absolute grind. That Kool-Aid was 20 years ago. (laughs) We need another Kool-Aid. So they took one last vacation in the country, which reminds me of that scene from Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette. Like everybody's lying in fields of flowers and going to get milk from the local farm. And And just frolicking and having fun as a family. They did this family thing. How sweet. Get them grounded again. So the week they got back, Pierre was walking back from a work lunch on a rainy day, slipped on a wet curb, and was killed instantly by a passing horse-drawn cart. That fast. Sorry I didn't lead up to that for you. But that's what it (laughs) felt like to Marie Curie, too. Yeah, and that morning they'd had a spat, which, oh, can you imagine carrying around that guilt for the rest of your life? I mean, it was just a regular spat that any couple has. He asked her if she was coming to lab. She said, I got to get the kids ready for school, you know, and he just... Stormed out. So spectators went through Pierre's pockets, found out who he was from his calling cards, contacted the Sorbonne, who then had to go and tell the family. First they told Grandpa, and the first thing he said is, my son is dead? What was he dreaming of this time? Oh. And when they told Marie, she was just incredulous. This had never even occurred to her that something like this could happen. And she said, Pierre is dead? Dead? absolutely dead. It's like she had to tell herself over and over again. So here's a quote from a book that Eve Curie wrote years afterward. Now keep in mind, Eve was not even quite two when her father died. So she is kind of basing this on her mother's personality, I think. Here's the quote. It is commonplace to say that a sudden catastrophe may transform a human being forever. Nevertheless, the decisive influence of these minutes upon the character of my mother, upon her destiny, and that of her children, cannot be passed over in silence. Marie Curie did not change from a happy young wife to an inconsolable widow. The metamorphosis was less simple and more serious. From the moment when those three words, Pierre is dead, reached her consciousness, a cape of solitude and secrecy fell upon her shoulders forever. Madame Curie, on that day in April, became not only a widow, but at the same time, a pitiful and incurably lonely woman.
Maria's bereft. Bereft. Even a couple days after his death, she did try to go back to the lab. You know, maybe work is the answer. Immerse yourself in being busy. And I think it was probably too soon. She wrote in her journal like she was writing to Pierre. And she said, the laboratory had an infinite sadness and seemed like a desert. Oh, I know. Now, you have to remember, she had a lifetime struggle with a situational depression. So even just getting out of bed... And having the wherewithal to think, okay, I'm going to write it out. You know, like now a lot of women work through their grief with blogs. This is kind of the same thing. And she did it through her journal. And she began it, Dear Pierre, you know, like a letter to him, like you said. And just having the thought to do that, it's quite remarkable. So she was having trouble in the lab because she kept looking around thinking it's unreal and he's just going to walk back in. And the house was the same way. Everywhere she looked in the house, she just felt like he's going to come right through the door. And so to that end, she decided she needed to move houses. After what I assume is a very emotional conversation with her father-in-law, he offered to move out. He's like, you wouldn't want to live with an old man now. Now that my son is gone, I'll, 
I can go live with my other son. You know, surely you want me gone. And Marie's like, I need you. Please, I need you. More than ever, because he's been instrumental in raising the girls. You know, he's been there for them. So another change, a historic one, was that the Sorbonne awarded Pierre's position, which was at the time an assistant professorship, but became a full one within a couple of years, awarded his position to Marie. Her salary quadrupled. Which is great. You know, the government had actually offered her a pension, which she turned down because she said she was young enough to earn a living to support her and her daughters. You know, in this day and age, you know, I, I can make my own money. I can I can make it. First female professor in France. Yeah. But here's the thing. Who else could they get? Seriously. <laughs> Who understood the work? I mean, there's no one more qualified. But the reality is, I think, here's the reality. I think they'd never have given it to her or really even honored her with full credit if Pierre hadn't died. I really think not. So this great opportunity came at a high price. Like people would congratulate her on this position and she'd want to punch them in the face. Yeah. Do you realize what I had to do to get this? It's not a good thing. It's yeah, I know. So the buzz was growing about Marie teaching her first class. This was going to be super exciting. The first woman to lecture at the Sorbonne. Reporters wanted to be there to hear what she said. Fashionable France wanted to be there, mostly to see if she'd fall apart because people are dirty. Traditionally, you kind of gave a little homage to your predecessor, and that in this case would be her recently departed husband. Mm -hmm. This could be super cool. One book I read compared the prospective audience to Birds of Prey. Because they're thinking a woman isn't going to be able to do what he did, first off. You know, sexism's rampant. Secondly, yeah. What was that phrase? Uh, Spin a street yarn. They always wanted to do that. You know? <laughs> like, Susan just learned that term and now she wants to put it in a sentence. I actually wrote it down. I'm like, use the term spin a street yarn as often as possible. <laughs> that is funny. People were putting pressure on the Sorbonne to move her first lecture to the big auditorium so more people could get in. This whole thing makes me think that the fashionable set has not changed since Versailles. They want to see a meltdown. They're super excited. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no spectacle, said the Sorbonne. You know, we are, <laughs> we are well brought up. No spectacle. We're not moving this. So the day of, the place was packed. The actual students came to find their seats are already taken. Yeah. <laughs> Standing room only. Um, Marie entered to thunderous applause. And there was a pause. And then she spoke. When one considers the progress that has been made in physics in the past 10 years, one is surprised by the advances that have taken place in our ideas concerning electricity and matter. She started with the last line that Pierre gave at his last class. Nothing to see here. The whole lecture, disintegration of the atom, the structure of electricity, just as if everyone in the room were her students and they had been to the previous lecture and now we're just continuing where we left off. I think it might have been a nod to her students because they would have recognized that line, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if anybody. And the rest of the people would have been like, yeah, okay, what? You know, this is disappointing. No yarn here. Right. Well, you know, the ones standing by the door, I don't know, students, late risers throughout history, I think, um, yeah. got it, like you said. And and she gave the whole regular lecture that she had prepared based on Pierre's notes, and then she vaporized out the back. So there, that job is work, work, money-making, making a living work. Mm-hmm. There's also laboratory work, which was gradually shifting from what... I would call pure science, you know, research for knowledge's sake to kind of practical applications for radiation and for her discovery and how can I turn this to help humanity type of thing. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the discovery was gone. Now it was the application, which isn't as glamorous. So I also have to say, remember, she is a mother to two little daughters. The younger one, who was only three at the time, remembers her mom as someone who kind of moved around in a fog and was sort of vague all the time. And one of her earliest memories was of her mother fainting in the dining room. (laughs) You know, grief, of course, and our old enemy depression and probably Mm -hmm. overwork and probably overexposure to radiation. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, in single parenting, working mom, it's it's the same struggles, you know. She didn't have any role models, really. No, not at all. And she didn't like this education system in France. That's right. So so she cobbled together a kind of a homeschool program for her kids and her friends' kids. It sounds quite idyllic. Um, They go to some lectures at the Sorbonne. They'd visit museums and they'd have people come in and teach them literature. So it was very relaxed and very home-based. It was called the cooperative. I mean, they even (laughs) learned Chinese. They even learned art from a sculptor. Yeah. So there were about 10 kids and literally the people teaching this endeavor had way more than 10 degrees between them. This is like having Yo-Yo Ma teach your children cello because he's your (laughs) friend. Um, So she taught the little kids at her establishment and she seems like a really good teacher. She's had a little background in this before teaching at the teacher's college. She's so interesting, I think, to kids. The class isn't boring. Like, here's one project. My son would love this and I hate to think about the laundry. Um, They covered ball bearings or big balls, you know, in ink and then they would look at the paths they made down different inclines and then they'd learn the math related to the way they made the path. Yeah. Yeah. They you get out of your seat, you try stuff. And she does have kind of a sense of humor, sort of a dry one. She had this pot of boiling water and she's standing up in front of the class. This is a physics class. Mm-hmm. How might I preserve the heat in this liquid? And so the kids are like yelling, insulate it with, you know, all these different material, wool and cork and blah, 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 place it in a vacuum. And she's standing there for like 15 full seconds in silence. And she goes, or I could just put on the lid. And what she doesn't say is, you freaking overachievers. (laughs) So these are some real smart kids, and they're used to being challenged in this way, but she's more like, oh, dear. You know, start simple, then complicate it after. And that's kind of how she worked, too. You start simple, you you get the radium together, and then you can develop some experiments. But once her daughter Irene wasn't paying attention, her mother just calmly threw her notebook out the window. (laughs) And she came back with it. And May is what they called her. May said again, okay, I'm going to ask you that question again. Are you ready? (laughs) That sounds like me, actually. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of moms, I think. Right now with the bottle flipping, I have thrown. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. I did retrieve it. I threw a bottle out the window the other day. Oh, my gosh. I dumped the bottles out. Yeah. You know what? I caught them. One of them doing the summer is dumping out half a bottle of water to get a half bottle instead of drinking it. They dumped it down the sink. I was like, you want to talk about flipping? That was a bottle flip. (laughs) The mama version. Anyway, back to Marie. (laughs) Tuesday's math classes were given by a protege of Pierre Curie's, a man named Paul Langevin. And over time, Marie and Paul became closer and closer. They both loved Pierre, of course. And there was great common ground with science. Their children had become friends. He began to confide in her. He told her about his unhappy marriage. And after not too long... The work friend thing had become an affair. An affair to the point of they rented an apartment to meet in an everything affair. Hmm. Mm. So let's have that 
this whole situation move simply to a place in the background. It's Marie is 39. It's 1907. There it is. Taking away. Sort of literally. Um, yeah. Under no the next part of the story. So okay. it's there. Okay. And incidentally, I think you referred to this before, but that collective, the scheme only lasted a couple years. I think everyone just had too much going on. Yeah. It had to be hard to maintain. Well, it reminds me of all those professors I had in college, especially, you know, freshman, sophomore year, the relative, you know, the ones that are always in the, the auditoriums that had the teachers had too much publishing to do to actually teach. So you were taught by TAs. Right. Until you got to junior year, I think. Yeah. For Marie and the girls, I mean, it was just a good um, transitional situation, I guess. Yeah. You know, for for their grief process. So the girls ended up going to a school that is still there, uh, still prestigious, as a matter of fact, called the College Sevigny, where Eve may have, may have, the timing is right, been a member of the very first kindergarten class in all of France, which was opened at the College Sevigny the year she was five. Oh, that would work. So that's pretty cool. So back to work. Back to work. <laughs> Lots is happening. Lots is happening. The scientific community agreed there needed to be some kind of standard measurement for radioactivity. And, you know, due in large part to her past accomplishments, of course, radium was chosen as the element they'd use. It's the thing they know the most about that's radioactive, I think, mm-hmm. after all. And there was a little hiccup where the commission for the radium standard gave the name one Curie to this very tiny amount of radiation. Mm-hmm. And Marie convinced them that no, one Curie should equal the radiation produced by one gram of pure radium. And that actually seems to make sense to me. Yeah, it does. And, but this is like, like we just had this conversation. You said it in two sentences, but the scientific community, it took a very long time. You know well, and they never did specify up. whether they named it after her or Pierre or both. It was never specified. Still, never. No. And she wasn't like getting off scot-free as far as, you know, oh, she's this great scientist. She was being challenged at every corner, which I guess in the scientific community is a necessity. But like Lord Kelvin, you know, the temperature guy, um, he he challenged their work saying that they didn't deserve the Nobel Prize and that their discovery of a new element was faulty. So, you know, Marie was like, what are you, crazy? So she set off to produce even more radium. Unfortunately, he died before she got to the Niener part, you know. That's Which a pretty is, big Niener. But so she was still faced with challenges for her science. And I don't know. I'm just going to say a lot of it may have been because she was a woman. In a man's world. And, you know, not to not to excuse them in any way, but honestly, these men have all been raised one way and they're being faced with a like a giraffe in the room. It is a complete novelty. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pierre was caught by her the novelty of her being able to keep up with him scientifically. Right. And he fell in love with her. Well, not everyone's going to fall in love with you. And they're still taken aback by the scientific, you know, preclusions mm-hmm. you have. So I think it's like the same the same effect it had on Pierre, kind of like, whoa, what is this? And some of them didn't take it well. No, but you know what? Someone that did take it well was multimillionaire Andrew Carnegie. So that was kind of cool. He came and he, he met with her and donated like a big chunk of money so that she could have a, a lab. I mean, he was so impressed by not only her work, but her. I mean, like, it was like $50,000, which is close to $1.5 million today. So, you know, she had her supporters. And her lab 
Although I have to say, you know, after she made the, the sample, the standard, they had to peel it out of her hands. Peel it. They didn't, she, she wanted to keep it. And they said, uh, the standard measure has to be in the hall of measurements with the other standards. You can't yeah. just stick it in a drawer. Hmm. So her lab got the work of verifying the strength of radioactive samples for other people. I mean, the chemical company can say the radium they're trying to sell a doctor or a radium water company or whoever. They can say it's strong (laughs) um, without a certificate from Marie's measuring service. So your credibility then was not so good. So she did the measurement and she was the measurement. (laughs) That's kind of good. That was my brain blowing. (laughs) She also finished, as if she had nothing else to do, she also finished Pierre's book, a 600-page book, mind you, that it was only half finished at the time of his death about gravity's effects on radium and polonium. I, it was probably sparkling, had many fun characters. There was probably a romance scene. <laughs> a dynamic storyline. Yeah. <laughs> well, she also edited a book of his published papers called The Works of Pierre Curie. And then she just immersed herself in work. And it must be said that she went all cold and she had thoughts of suicide, sort of, mm-hmm. or at least passive suicide. I'm just going to read you another quote from her journal. Among all those vehicles in the street, is there not one to make me share the fate of my beloved? I'll do my duty to the children, but there's no joy left in me and never will be again. Yeah, and she said something else I don't have it in front of me about how, you know, she would not commit suicide, but she would welcome death. Yes. So she kind of wanted the vehicle to jump the curb, but she wasn't going to step off the curb. Right. Well, her older daughter was having nightmares. Her older daughter's nine, and she was freaking out all the time asking people, is May dead? Is May dead too? She's nine. It's a reasonable response to trauma, but Marie just seemed to be relieved she'd stop asking about her father. She considered that a positive development. She's not a child psychologist. Yeah, no, no. Well, so her relationship with the children about now was just distant fondness. Like, Grandpapa was the daily affection, and thank goodness he was there. Almost for their sakes... It Mm -hmm. seems like kind of like so they wouldn't be subjected to her happy face with a straight line across it. It was just a mask she wore. There's not happy and there's not sad. There's just nothing. She sent them away a lot. to Not away. Like, business, get out. Away to nice relatives' houses, friends' houses, governesses. She was separated from them for a long time. So there's a second thing percolating in the background Mm -hmm. is the relationship with her children. Marie published her own book called The Treatise on Radioactivity, to which some male scientists reacted sort of like, oh, uh, isn't that cute? The little woman sure did write a lot down. There's a lot of words. It'll be useful to look things up for a few years until it becomes obsolete. Openly disparaging her about that. Okay, and I'm just going to play the devil's advocate here, but my guess is that they were probably doing that to each other too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, more so probably to her. But to each other, yeah. Well, and then science is nothing if not delighted to upend somebody else's theory. So you're right. It probably wasn't just because she was a woman. She's published three books within (laughs) a space of a tiny period. And I think there's a certain jealousy uh, in that, you know. Well, sure. Speaking of jealousy, Paul Langevin's wife had found out about them. (laughs) Oh, what a smooth transition. Thank you. I've been practicing in the newscaster to weatherman school of transition. So I guess this guy had been kind of a serial cheater throughout their marriage. It was a mismatch, although they had four children, so whatever. Marie and Paul were actually very close for a very long time. He used to be a student of Pierre's. 
Yeah. It, it, they've known each other for years. So his serial um, uh, dalliances were probably well known to her. Well, his wife had always looked the other way before. And I don't know if it was Marie herself and the way she was or just the famousness of, quote, Madame Curie. This one was different in some way. Maybe Paul really was falling in love with her and she felt very threatened. This wasn't just a little fling. This could be a thing, you know. So this one was different somehow. And Paul warned Marie that his wife wanted to kill her. Like, yeah, yeah. Wait, Mrs. Paul and her sister waited in an alley and attacked her on her way home, telling her she'd better leave France unless she wanted to die. And Paul just said, well, she's perfectly capable of murder, my dear. You know, like, oh, my God. (laughs) Maybe you'd better leave France, he said, at least for a while. And she's, leave France, no way. Her application for this prestigious Academy of Sciences Founded in 1666, was wending its way through the process of election. And the Pasteur Institute was working with her to open a lab. It's not a good time to be leaving France. And plus, I'm a French citizen. I have every right to be here. You know, he's the one that's stepping out on his wife. Marie's not doing it. But of course, his wife is looking at it very differently. It's always the girl's fault. I don't know. Mm -hmm. She's Uh not married. No, exactly. So I don't think the onus is exactly on her. But anyway, we'll get back to that. I don't know. (laughs) But the election process to this academy was very grueling. Pierre had gone through it before, and it really bugged him. You had to call on all the members and make your case, a little small talk, a little sipping of the tea or the wine, blah, blah. Pierre freaking hated that. Marie was kind of in her fog, so she just, like, walked through it. You know how, like... When you walk through the steps of a dance when you're learning it or whatever, there's no emotion. She's making the calls, checking off, you know. So she doesn't actually kind of care, and it kind of goes well for her that way. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But these sexist newspaper cartoons portrayed her as this frivolous lady who just wanted the fancy title or as a hardened criminal trying to take the honor right out of a man's hand, and she's Polish, Um, there were still about half of them that really resented her for her gender. Even though on paper, she was more qualified to be in there than some of them. They called her on having inappropriate ambition, is how they put it. Yeah. So ultimately, she lost 28 to 30, which is actually very close. Yeah, it is very close. So she lost to the man who had developed the wireless telegraph. So it was a worthy competitor. And a pretty good showing, actually, given the obstacles she'd faced. And you can always try again. It's very common not to make it the first time. It's not an insult. I mean, somebody has to die again before you can try to get back in. (laughs) But there's no shame in your game if you didn't get in on the first go-round. That's fine. It's common enough. But she didn't apply again. And in fact, the first female full member of the French Academy of Sciences was not admitted. You want to guess the year? Oh, I know the year. Oh, Yes. It's how about 1979? That's kind of shocking. I know. Well, you know what happened is at this time they ha- the academy held a secret vote and said decided that no girls would be allowed in their so, little clubhouse. Yes, that's right. So even if she had desired to run again, she couldn't because of that little old Y chromosome. So she did receive an invitation to another exclusive event called the Solvay Conference. So here's what you have. 20-some of the best physicists 
in the world in one room discussing one topic with each other. So all expenses paid because Mr. Solvay is super rich in Brussels, Belgium, and he got all these people together. And in this case, they were going to discuss radiation. And Marie was the only woman invited. Also there, the man who thought her book would be obsolete in a year. (laughs) Also there, a young Albert Einstein, both pre and post theory of relativity, confusingly (laughs) enough. He published one part, then there was the conference, and then years later he published the other part. I thought I could really determine. He did have dark hair, but it stuck up just as bad when he was young. (laughs) I thought he was really cute. He's super cute. I don't. Is, I mean, here we go objectifying the greatest minds in the world. But <laughs> he would think it was so funny. He wouldn't care. Yeah, he okay. had a great sense of humor. I hope so. And also, Paul Langevin, oh ho, secret boyfriend and longtime work colleague, is also at the table. Marie received some good news and some bad news. So the good news is, congratulations, we've awarded you the 1911 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Stay tuned. The bad news is Madame Langevin went through her husband's desk. She has all your letters. She's sending them to the newspapers. She's already accused you of disappearing with her husband, to which Marie responded, we didn't disappear. We were at a conference. You can ask anybody. That's right. There's pictures of me and I, Albert Einstein right there at the table. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The poo hit the fan. The poo Hit the fan. Marie was called every name under the sun. A homewrecker, a harlot, a foreigner, a Jew. What? (laughs) People stood around her house and threw rocks through her windows. People spit on her. Many of her colleagues kind of carefully distanced themselves from her. There were calls for her to leave France. One colleague went so far as to get her a university job in Poland so she could get away. Yeah. And not as a benefit to her as like a, here, look, go. So she's, they're threatening that perhaps she should leave her job, her country, her job, everything. Why this hate? I mean, huh? No one's calling for Paul Langevin, father of four, serial, what am I going to call him? An extracurricularist? (laughs) Say that three times fast. I don't even know. And the other half of this scandal, who is more at fault, really, whatever, to Mm -hmm. to leave. This would never be an issue if she'd been a man. Uh, never. No. Um, so the letters weren't so explicit. I mean, hardly even PG-13 by today's standards. But there's naked jealousy in there, if not naked parts, if you know what I mean. Her sleeplessness, her thoughts of him, instructions on how to behave with his wife to make her leave him. That's where the French press is like, what? She cautions him in one very notorious letter not to become weak and get his wife pregnant, which would be the worst thing for both of them. Not both of them, meaning his wife and him, but Marie and Paul. Yeah. (laughs) Um, This whole situation was called the greatest sensation in France since the theft of the Mona Lisa. You guys. Matters got so bad that Marie had to flee for a while and use her sister's name for camouflage when she checked in as Bronislava Deluska. And she had to hide her kids because the press is surrounding her house. You know, they want they want blood. They want that street yarn, you know. Okay, I won't use that word ever again. Well, today. <laughs> <laughs> well, Albert Einstein, father of the child of one of his own students by the way, mm-hmm. and who later, when married, had an affair with his own first cousin, who he ended up marrying. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying there are other people who have situations 
He was very useful at this time. He said, I am impelled to tell you how much I admire you, your intellect, your drive, and your honesty, and I consider myself lucky to have made your personal acquaintance. You hold that riffraff in contempt. Just stop reading it and leave it for those vipers that they made it up for. So, yes, easy to say, Mr. Einstein, easy to say. Mm -hmm. But over at Nobel Prize HQ, there was great consternation because Paul Langevin had been embroiled in a open conflict with a <laughs> yeah, the, reporter. Yeah, the only thing that really happened to him that was bad, I guess, was that a reporter had called him a bore and a coward in print, and Paul wasn't going to take that. So here's this scientist and this writer that have challenged each other to a duel. So they come to the duel, they walk their paces, they turn, and both of them refuse to raise their pistols, which kind of sounds like a metaphor for something else, but I uh -huh. can't quite figure out what it is. So that was like, that was the extent of his, you know, the bad things that happened to him because of it, the whole thing. And she's like being, you know, they want to kick her out of the country. <sighs> and the Nobel prize committee sent a letter that said, we must do everything possible to avoid scandal. The princess will be at the ceremony and other royalty. Where could Madame Curie even sit? Who could possibly have her at their table? Which is monstrously unfair. She got a letter which basically expressed regret that they had already offered her the prize in the first place. And if she could, A, not come to the ceremony, please, and B, decline the prize until... These accusations are proven false and your name is cleared. Make it about your pride and your respect for this organization, please. And Marie wrote what I'd call a tart letter back. Oh, yeah. They weren't giving her this prize. She had earned it. You know, it wasn't a gift. It was something that she had earned. So she wrote him back and she said, quote, the prize has been awarded for discovery of radium and polonium. There is no connection between my scientific work and my private life. And the value of scientific work can't be influenced by libel and slander concerning my private life. So basically, like, I will be there, the end. And she did go. And King Gustav himself presented the prize. And no one said a dang thing about the scandal. Good upbringing one, I guess, if there's an unpleasant subject. Let's change the subject. I don't think anyone forgot about it. Get this, though. Sly. Maybe not on purpose, whatever. During the dinner, Bizet's Carmen was playing. And in <laughs> that work, the heroine inspires duels uh, and ends up being killed by her lover. Followed by, <laughs> followed by uh, an orchestral work entitled Cleopatra. We know how her morals were viewed, don't we? Dirty pool, King Gustav. Dirty pool. <laughs> But on the surface, everybody was kind to her. You know, they weren't, it, even though the music in the background was playing, you know, the words were kind, don't you think? The words were kind. Well, the words were well brought up. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, I think it was just more like, let us place this firmly behind me in a cupboard and turn the key because it is not proper to bring this up at this point. We've tried <laughs> to handle it behind the scenes. And now we are doing this on a stage and we will behave ourselves, except for our choice of music selection. Hmm. King Gustav, by the way, had his own bedroom scandal years later. 
<laughs> it involved a young man. That's all I'm saying. We're not going to get into King Gustav, but I'm just saying pots call kettles black. Yeah. All Are they going to take King Gustav's award away from him? Me thinks not. Interesting. So in her speech, Marie was very clear, very clear in drawing sort of a frame around what was her work, her own without Pierre, without the follow-up research that had come based on her work. And she she wanted credit. She might not have wanted the money, the patent, but what she did want to make sure that, was that no one saw her as, as less than, as somebody's assistant. Her speech made it very clear that this was her work and as it should have, as it should have. Oh, Yeah. So Marie Curie was the first person to receive two Nobel Prizes in two different branches of science, chemistry and physics. Let's just let that information sit with us for a few minutes, and we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we'll find out what life after that second Nobel Prize was like. Chapter five. Marie had been through the ringer. I just want to say that here's a quick wrap up of the case. Madame Langevin did get her divorce and got to keep her children. Uh, the, the ultimate result didn't happen until years later after Paul had an affair with someone else. So where's the vitriol for him? We don't know. Or that anonymous other woman. We don't know. Anyway, here we leave the whole lot of them. Au revoir. I wish we could entirely leave the whole lot of them, but it left a mark on Marie because she came back from Sweden, a, a very weakened woman. Between the Nobel Prize one and the Nobel Prize two, the grandfather who'd been the constant in the lives of the girls had died about four years after Pierre did. So Marie is really single parenting with the help of governesses, and she's had all these major stressors on her. So she's not going to handle it very well. And they'd had to move into this apartment on the fourth floor of a building because her house had turned into a tourist attraction. I almost said circus attraction, which is kind of a Freudian slip. Eh? Yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah, exactly. And so depression, our old friend, got hold of her again, which, fair enough, a lot had happened. And she made threats of suicide. Her health otherwise had taken a turn for the worse so badly so badly that she had to undergo an operation on her kidneys that nearly killed her. And she didn't see her daughters for over a year. She was moving about to various places between France and England. At one point, she was being cared for by Hertha Ayrton. Is that how you pronounce that last name? Mm -hmm. She had experience helping starving suffragettes, including Christabel Pankhurst, who is the daughter of Emmeline, the suffragist leader. Um, She was helping her get stronger, but a year. That's a long time. And then when they did reconnect, it was on vacation with the Albert Einsteins. Here's a little anecdote about Mr. Einstein that I think is really touching. The two girls liked him. He's a fun guy. He's a humorous guy. He has sticky up hair. He's hilarious. And he's, (laughs) you know, unlike usual scientists, I think he's more like comfortable with people than all the rest of these nerds. (laughs) So he was a breath of fresh air, I think. And so they determined they're all going to go hiking. And the little girls think, okay, we're going to get Mr. Einstein because you know how May is. She walks around and doesn't look and she's going to fall into a crevasse and we are too little to get her back out. Let's take Mr. Einstein with us because he's strong enough and he'll pay attention and he can get her back out. Cool. Nope. 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 Albert Einstein and Marie Curie got into a conversation and those fools had to be pulled back by their belt loops so many times. (laughs) 
by small children that the small children were very disgusted with him. You're no help at all, basically. You call yourself an adult? What? You're no help to us. Goodbye. <laughs> so a great compliment came from her homeland. Poland was building a radium institute. Please, Madame Curie, please move back and be its director. Think about how much she had wanted to help Poland during those flying university years. Mm-hmm. She'd almost moved back instead of marrying Pierre in the first place. But now, mm, circumstances had changed. She'd really come too far professionally in France to move back, I think. And she was determined to stay there and watch the walls of the Institut du Radium Pavillon Curie. I have no idea if I said it right. Um, it's in a street called Pierre Curie Street. It's all Curie all the time. She's there hassling the workmen, according to some accounts, kind of into everything and everybody's business. She not only hired a gardener for the grounds, she planted a landscape worth of flowers herself because when the lab opened, she wanted there to be a nice show, like a good curb appeal. She wanted people to have a good feeling. I know some moms who have thought ahead and done that for a daughter's wedding. You seem like that kind of mom. That would landscape for a daughter's wedding? Yeah. Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I put up an arch and planted things around it for her senior year. <laughs> oh, there you go. See? For a senior year picture. Yeah. The arch, the tree. Yeah. <laughs> In July of 1914, when Marie was 47 years old, the Radium Institute was finally open. It was actually these two big multi-story labs and they're connected by a courtyard. So one would be focused on medical uses of radioactivity. And one would be dedicated to more like pure science properties, chemical and physical of radioactive elements. Basically a well-staffed, well-organized, well-funded version of Pierre and Marie's old machine shed. But this one had a roof. And heating. (laughs) I wrote, and heat. And prestige. Prestige too. But what it didn't have was good timing. Unfortunately, Germany declared war on Russia on August 1st, less than a month after the opening, and France was bound by a treaty to defend Russia. So the order for mobilization went out. And at this time, all French men between 20 and 48 were to some degree involved in active service. It was just how things were organized. So the young ones were active army for three years, and then you kind of got less and less degree of reservist until you were technically exempt when you're 49. What this meant for Marie, though, there was suddenly no staff. And within weeks, German troops were in French territory. She was in a country at war. The French government bailed out of Paris as too vulnerable and set up shop in Bordeaux, which is on the opposite side of France, I know there's east and there's west, but if you're looking at a picture of France, it's on the bottom left. (laughs) It's kind of as far away from Germany as you can get and still be in France by the ocean. Marie's children were away on vacation with their governesses in Brittany. Now, they're comparatively safe because they're on the top left, just across the English Channel from England, as close as they can get to that escape route. Really, her immediate family was pretty safe, as safe, safer than she was in Paris. But it was her family in Poland she was really worried about. The Germans had invaded and there was no news. So would she herself go to safety? You know, she decided she would not. She was very afraid for the new institute. And it's like her and one man who had a heart condition and couldn't be sent to the army were rattling around by themselves and she wanted to stay and try to protect it and i was thinking from the germans i'm just not sure the average soldier is going to be put off by 
one lady in a black dress. But I do get it. It's sort of irrational, but maybe thievery and looting prevention. I guess I can see that. Because if people in France see her, they'll know who she is. But I don't know that the average German soldier is going to be like, oh, no, it is Marie Curie. This is the sanctified hall of radium. We must not proceed. Well, and then the radium itself, she was in possession of, you know, all the radium in France, which was extremely valuable. Um, it was only amounted to about a half a teaspoon, but it was her responsibility to take care of it. That could power the whole institute's worth of research. You don't need a lot. Mm-mm. A little goes a long way. So this little bit went a long way. <laughs> um, oh, she... <laughs> that laugh, I don't know. <laughs> she personally took that radium and she lugged it in a 45-pound lead suitcase down to Bordeaux to keep it safe during the war. That she was seriously embarrassed to be seen leaving Paris. She was seriously embarrassed. She did not want anyone to think she was afraid. I'd be afraid, of course, but I would have been off to Brittany with my children a long time ago. Her children were protected and she was protecting the only other thing that was extremely valuable to her. And that was her research and this radium. Oh, she's on the train and people are like, oh, are you Madame Curie? And she's like, no, I get that a lot. You know, She wouldn't tell people who she was. She didn't want to be called a coward. Mm-mm. So she's standing at this station for a long time with this case that's too heavy for her to pick up. And luck would have it. Some passing official not only picked it up because of chivalry not being dead, etc., he recognized her, got her a bed, got someone to carry the case, and they put it in the bank. Does the bank know they have, like, I guess it's in lead, but, like, <laughs> are they aware of what is sitting in their safe deposit box? I just don't know. Um, so then she went back to Paris to the astonishment of everyone in Bordeaux. Like, you're going back? Okay. So she went to the National Help Society and volunteered her time. You know, no, go. Just go home and rest. We're fine. They don't know her very well, I think. No. If they thought she'd be sent home. She gave money to hospitals, to charities, to Polish relief. She knitted like crazy. <laughs> she offered her two Nobel medals to be melted down for the war effort. Each one's about a third of a pound of 23 karat gold. I looked it up this morning. Valuable. Oh, you did. I'm, I'm sitting here going, dang, I never looked that up. Good for you. <laughs> well, as of this morning, they're worth $6,500 a piece. It's impossible. I mean... Was gold more expensive than, I don't know. You know, that's like too much calculation for this little frivolous sentence, but the bank wouldn't do it. No, thank you. We're not going to melt down Nobel Prize medals. Although, you know what? Right at the beginning of World War II, gosh, wish I'd written this down because I didn't. (laughs) There was a scientist who, afraid that his Nobel Prize medal was going to be seized by the Germans, he dissolved the gold in a solution, Mm -hmm. dissolved his medal so that it just looked like a bubbling cauldron in Snape's potions classroom. And they came in and, you know, I don't know what that is. And then the Nobel Committee, after the war, recast his medal for him. Wow. With that gold. That's pretty cool. I have to figure out who that is. We'll put it in the show notes. That is pretty cool. So anyway, all this piddly crap, you know, she's frustrated. Now, what can I do to be really useful? And it came to her. It came to her, although this wasn't really her specialty. It had been the inspiration for her own work. X-rays. Wounded men were already beginning to show up back to Paris. And if doctors had access to x-ray machines, there'd be no need for all this exploratory surgery to find out where the shrapnel even was. Like digging around, putting your manky fingers in, you know, come on. So to work, this I can do this. She spent September getting money and equipment 
and equipping Paris hospitals with x-rays and training workers to use them, including Marie's daughters who had joined her. The 17-year-old Irene joined in her mother's scheme. She has to do everything thoroughly. And Marie actually took a class in anatomy and another one in x-ray procedure, a real fast class, so that she could have all the information she needed to operate these x-ray machines. And then she went a step further. You know what we need? Because you can't always bring the wounded to me here at the stationary facility or to any other hospital because she did the hospitals first. What we need are mobile units. Yes, we do. So we're going to save some more lives. And so she outfitted this touring car, kind of a long convertible, with an x-ray unit, a blackout tent, and a generator that could be run off the car's engine and immediately realized she was on to something useful. And so in pursuit of this goal, Marie kind of lost her shyness. And she (laughs) extracted passes out of government officials, money out of thin air, and motor cars out of wealthy ladies' garages. And she said... I'll return them after the war, of course, if they're still drivable. <laughs> like, no <laughs> knowing, promises. Yeah, knowing full well that she's about to take them to a body shop and get them modified into a into an ambulance-type vehicle. <laughs> but so- she amassed a fleet of 20, and they were called Little Curies. They had a driver and an x-ray technician and all the equipment that they would need to help out in the field. So she had to train people, men and women, And like Susan said, not just how to run the machines, but anatomy, mechanical engineering, because they had to be able to fix their cars or the x-ray machines, and geometry, so they could be extremely useful. You have to kind of triangulate, based on the x-ray, how deep the wound is. Right. And uh, that's going to boggle everyone's mind in the field, so you got to send an expert in to interpret the results, I think. (laughs) And Irene actually took over as the teacher while her mother was in the field. Ultimately, there were 200 fixed x-ray stations. In addition, Marie made radon gas syringes to be used to sterilize wounds. I've read several places that that's of dubious efficacy, but at the time, that was said to save lives. I don't know if it was really helpful to sterilize them or if it was a placebo effect that it made people feel better this like glowing blue thing applied to their wound which this is also the time that she's she's giving standard issue felt gloves as protection from the radiation and next i mean that was a coat and felt gloves would protect you from any radiation that the x-rays are giving off Ooh. Now think about it now, even when you go to the dentist to get an x-ray on your teeth, you're like covered in that heavy lead blanket and the the, uh, hygienist hightails it out of the room. Yes. So Marie herself learned to drive, also to fix cars. And because you can't always count on a chauffeur being available, men were needed, you know, to do other things. She saw firsthand the horrors of war and sometimes really in fear. She'd be driving alone during wartime on bad roads. Where's the enemy? I don't know. To get to a battlefield hospital. She's very brave and she's more protective of the equipment than herself. (laughs) She was so mad. This driver went off the road a little and tipped that car upside down. She was trapped inside the car. She was so mad. She thought the x-ray machine had broken and she only came out of her. She only came out of her funk and her anger when she's trapped in the car and the driver's running in circles around the car. Madam, are you dead? Madam, are you dead? Madam, are you dead? Like a chicken. And it made her laugh. So 
she survived. No, she wasn't dead. The x-ray machine was fine. But she was more concerned about the equipment. She visited 300 hospitals. Sometimes people thought that this bent-over lady in simple clothes was a cleaning woman. But she never cared about that. She worked with peasants, and she worked with the Queen of Belgium. And it didn't make her know, never mind, who was the rank of what. She eased people's minds. She explained what the x-rays were. She, you know, made people unafraid of them. She was very calm. You know, I don't know that she was exactly a nurse, but she was certainly a voice of reason. A certain level of emotionlessness, you know, that kind of relaxed people, I think. Yeah. Well, her viewpoint on this whole thing was, I can't do anything for Poland. So... I must help my adopted country. Mm-hmm. And it is that same kind of revolutionary fire she had had as a young person, though I thought there was a certain irony. And now she's battling on the same side as the, as the Russians yeah, against them. Exactly. Exactly. That must have stung a little bit at the onset. So by the end of the war, Marie Curie's machines and technicians had helped over a million wounded soldiers. And I was reminded of when we covered Josephine Baker, who on the surface is flamboyant. She dances with bananas and not much else on her bod. But her spy work saved thousands of lives. And here we have the shy scientist saving a million lives. And I said he was gone. I did say he was gone, but I lied. Because I do want to tell you that lover boy Langevin, we're going to talk about him for a second. Just one more second. (laughs) He invented this sonar rig using a piece of crystal of Pierre Curie's that Marie had given him. He used it to locate submarines. So he saved lives, too. And that is really all I'm going to say about him. He's really gone. Oh, wait. Nobody. All right. I'm going to say one more thing. Because he's not really gone. He remains a family friend for the rest of her life or his life. He's gone from the script. He's gone from our story. Yes. But he's not gone from their lives at all. Along came Armistice Day. At last, November 11th, 1918, not only was the war over, but Poland was independent. It was a free country at last. I'm sitting here waving my hands like there's flags in them. I'm celebrating Armistice Day. Speaking of flags, Marie wanted to put flags all over the Radium Institute, and there's not a flag left in Paris, so they had to go to the fabric store. Oh, man. Make the tricolor. No, they didn't have to cut out stars or anything, so it could have been worse. Yeah, that's true. Just straight lines. That's true. So now she can turn to the business at hand. You know, one lifelong achievement, check. Free Poland. Good. Done. Another lifelong achievement was being done actually in the background. And just like her parents wanted their children to have an education, she wanted it for her own kids. And during the war, somehow, Irene earned her Bachelor of Science in Physics from the Sorbonne. (laughs) How do you these do that? People, these people have a to-do list and they just check it off. I know, and then she started working on her own doctorate, studying polonium's alpha rays. <laughs> like, so imagine all these bombs and this war and doing all this stuff with the Red Cross and going to class to get your degree in physics. <sighs> they make the rest of us look really lazy. <laughs> I made a grilled cheese sandwich before. Did you? That's I my made- achievement. That's on my to-do list. <laughs> Good for you. I might do laundry later. that's about my level of achievement for the day. I'm recording a podcast. You see, it just keeps snowballing. Maybe I am really accomplished after all. Yeah, you are. You have to do your list at the end of the day. I love that that you do that. I have done that for years. Explain it. The short version is why feel bad and put pressure on yourself at the beginning 
with stuff you know you're not going to get to. So just at the end of the day, write down all the stuff that you already did and then check it all off and then throw the list away. The end. (laughs) Feels good. Something to look forward to. Realizing what you've done. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, we do we forget a lot of stuff that we've done. And we just think about the stuff we have left to do. And there will always be stuff left to do. There's no point dwelling on it. Just focus on the stuff you've already done. And speaking of accomplishments, Irene, in addition to earning her degree, she was actually awarded a military medal for her service during the war from France. And Marie, what did she get, Beckett? Bubkiss. Oh my gosh, that's the same word I wrote down. Bubkiss. Really? Are yes. you kidding? No, I'm not kidding. It's a great word. I didn't write it down. I just said it out loud. That's hilarious. Yeah. Mind meld. Yeah, she really got nothing. But you know what? She never really cared for the awards people gave her. If you recall, long ago, she got the Davy Medal from England and gave it to Irene to play with. So, and she wanted her Nobel Prize medals melted down. She didn't care. What she did care about was that Radium Institute. So every morning she'd go, it's open for business, you know. Yeah. She'd go to the Institute. She'd walk in the door and everyone's lurking around, super casual, waiting for her. And she would be besieged by students in the entryway. These kind of interruptions, she absolutely did not mind. These are students and they wanted to show her stuff, a little show and tell. Oh, look, Madam Curie, what I did. Um, can you look at this paragraph and see if you see anything wrong with my math? Can you help? I'm having trouble understanding this. She sat on the stairs because there's nowhere else to sit and fielded these questions from the crowd and then after a while everyone would drift off and she could get back to work and i i think that is so adorable and touching that she goes in knowing every day she's going to be sitting on that stairs for 45 minutes yeah the main part of her job that she hated was fundraising i mean fundraising sucked the glory did not translate into gold which sounds very familiar to me (laughs) she was constantly having to wheedle and contrive and work on schemes which she considered a waste of time like why can i not just do the work ah it's always that way though seriously the thing that gets you into the business is the thing once it's successful that you yourself don't get to do anymore it seems like yeah Another thing that Marie really didn't like was press. And who could blame her (laughs) after all that hoopla? (laughs) No. Um, So she even had little cards printed, little square cards that said, you know, because you need them every day. Madam Curie regrets she will not have time and will have to decline your offer of an interview. They're printed. They're ready to go. That's right. But one American journalist got in somehow. Her name was Missy Maloney. First of all, she's a friend of a friend. That always helps. Secondly, she was a self-made woman. In her life, I mean, I I actually wrote out a whole page. I could have gone longer. We could probably, but we won't, do a mini cast on her life. She was Kentucky born. She was privately tutored for her education. She had a promising career cut short as a pianist because of a horseback riding accident. I mean, that tells you the level uh, in society that her family was. At 15, she wrote for the Washington Post. At 16, she helped cover the Republican National Convention. At 18, she became a reporter for the Denver Post in Washington and was the first woman to get a seat on the Senate press gallery. I mean, this she's a big deal. And she's been trying to get a meeting with Marie Curie for a very long time because she's extremely impressed by her. But it was her little note that touched Marie's heart 
And here's a little excerpt from it. She wrote, My doctor father always used to say that it's quite impossible to exaggerate the littleness of human creatures. But for 20 years, you have been great in my eyes, madam. And I want to see you only for a few minutes. Missy's first impression was, quote, I saw a pale, timid little woman in a black cotton dress with the saddest face I have ever looked upon. Her well-formed hands were roughed. I noticed a characteristic nervous little habit of rubbing the tips of her fingers over the pad of her thumb. I later learned that radium had made them numb. Her kind, patient, beautiful face had the detached expression of a scholar. I think in those sentences, we get such a beautiful vision of what Marie Curie was like in person. So it was that the women got to talking. And it came out in conversation that of the 140 or so grams of radium in existence in the world, Missy Maloney's own country, that would be America, had 50 of them. And she was literally shocked when Marie told her that France only had one. Total one. And that if she could have anything in the world, she would ask for one more gram of radium. The one they had was the product of years of work. And there's just no time to make another one. And there's too expensive to buy it. Is that just ironic? And I do think Missy Maloney went in as a fan, like a, I'm so excited to meet my idol. I think she went in there, like to get stuff for her magazine, you know, like any press person would, but she came out of there kind of fired up with a goal, like by hook or by crook. She is going to raise money for another gram of radium for this woman. And it's over a million bucks in today's money. Mm -hmm. She's going to get it from the women of America. And, and you can sort of see that Marie didn't believe that it would ever happen because she said, well, if the women of America want to buy me a gram of radium, I'll be happy to come over and get it. That's right. She would not be happy. So she pretty much assumed they, it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to happen. So the, the irony, of course, is that she hates the press and she hates asking for money. And that's the two, two things that are going to save her at this point in her life. Well, and Marie did not know the kind of PR powerhouse she was dealing with. Missy came back and she mobilized the troops, not literal troops, rich, powerful politicians' wives down to Girl Scout troops to contribute to the Marie Curie Radium Fund. You know, women were empowered in America this time because we'd just gotten the vote, you know. So like, yes, look what a woman can do. Now, that's what Missy was presenting. This woman who did it without the you know, without the legal voice, they needed this kind of role model in their lives. These American women did. And they were, they were donating one or $5 donations. That's it. That's all they had to do to be part of this big movement. Now, I'm sorry to say there's a little false advertising. There's a little spin. Let's call it spin. It was kind of implied that radium could cure cancer. And that's why they needed it. And that was really that part of the research was really in its infancy, radioactive treatments for cancer. But in fact, Missy's first big PR push was literally entitled that millions shall not die. And it warned that, well, Madame Curie's getting older and soon the world's going to lose the secret of curing cancer forever. I mean, <laughs> nothing like lighting a fire, I guess. And Marie was always clear this was just research radium. To which Missy would just say, details, my dear details. They don't know yes. that. It's too hard to explain. We need to bo- boil it down to just a few words. Cure cancer. So soon, very soon, really, the American women had the money. So come on over. Oh, crap. That's right. I got to go over there now. Oh, no. So Marie and her daughters headed to America on the Olympic. 
Can I just point out that this is finally an Eve sighting? I mean, poor Eve has been in the background. You know, Irene has worked with her through the war, and Irene has been off getting raised by other people. You know, but finally she gets to go on a trip with her mom and Irene and she got her mom to buy a new dress. She got her to buy a new dress, but it was kind of a plain dress. And uh, so Irene and Marie Curie had like, you know, ugly squashy hats and clunky shoes. And then here's Eve. So attractive, Mm -hmm. by the way. They called her the girl with the radium eyes. She had such a funny relationship with Eve. There's whole conversations they used to have because, you know, she understood Irene. Mm-hmm. And they, they had a good working scientific relationship, and she was so intrigued by Eve, who was musical and fashionable and extroverted, which is completely <laughs> incomprehensible to Marie Curie. <laughs> kind of a um, you know, medium attracted to it, just like kind of examining her like a specimen. I'm not sure you should put those stilts on your feet, Eve. <laughs> that lipstick, I, I don't know about that color. And it's okay to have a dip in the front of the dress. That's pretty standard. But all the way in the back? I don't know. I think you're going to catch cold. What if a man dances with you and puts his hand on your back? It was all – she was just – But that was after she was worried that Eve didn't have any gifts, you know, early in life because Eve was not drawn to science and math like Irene and Marie were. And she – it's kind of like, remember Hella? <laughs> Uh, Marie's sister, who was never talked about because she came in second. Eve, I think she had the same worries for Eve until Eve was discovered to be musically gifted. And then I guess she could relax and concentrate on the fact that her dress was dipping in the back. (laughs) And I actually think there's a strong correlation between music and math. My parents are symphony musicians, and I think they back me up. I think science backs you up. So here's the thing. On this trip, sometimes... The daughters would have to stand in for Marie Curie. They they really loaded her up with activities. It was grueling. Lectures at colleges, late night dinners, honorary degrees, factory tours, Niagara Falls, the Grand Canyon. And I thought, now what? Because those two things are not next to each other Mm -hmm. in this country. And that's exactly what I'm saying. Everyone wanted to see her all over the dang country. Incidentally, we had German exchange students for seven years when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And the two things that the German students always wanted to see were the Statue of Liberty and the Grand Canyon. And it was very difficult to explain to them that either of those things was really far away. You know, Missy had planned a whole West Coast tour, too, and they didn't get to that because Marie just couldn't take it. She was just getting too tired. You know, Irene was stepping in for her. Eve was doing speaking for her to people, you know, just being the social member of the team. It was a lot. Uh, yeah, Marie was obviously ill. I mean, noticeably ill. There were lots of comments on how exhausted she looked. And she was suffering from cataracts mm-hmm. uh, at this point. And everyone commented on how frail she appeared. She's only 54. 54 is hale and hearty, go out and play tennis these days. But I think the constant exposure to that radium, I mean, you used to carry it around in your pocket. Yeah. And four years of unshielded full-strength x-rays where you're wearing an apron. Yeah. Yeah. And she's also standing next to Eve, who's only 16. And, you know, (laughs) so by contrast, she's looking, you know, a lot older. I just think that all that exposure was adding up to some serious damage. Like this, it was all kind of snowballing and kind of hitting her all at once. But eventually, at the end of this exhausting tour, President Harding presented her with her gram of radium. That is to say a stunt 
gram of radium <laughs> because the real one was in the bank because it's a million dollars worth of tiny thing and we're not going to walk around with it. And Marie was so, so very grateful. Um, she left with not only that gram of radium, but a lot of extra money. Oh. And a lot of great work from male and female scientists began or happened within those institutes walls. I'm telling you, that gift really paid off in research. They didn't waste it and just put it in a closet. She didn't like and hardly ever really liked, you know, she did her bid for that Academy of Sciences thing, but most associations she just said, I don't have time for. But she did join one, the International Committee on Intellectual Cooperation, which, among other things, ensured funding for science from, say, poor scientists who couldn't afford a lab because she had been there and was kind of always there on the edge of being like that. International cooperation and sharing of research while giving full credit to people, all kinds of things like that. Basically, a global think tank and standards. When the Polish Institute was open, she went back to America a second time and did the whole circus again for another gram. Not like a trained monkey, but as a, I mean, she really, she's like, I've got this down now. I know how this is going to go. I'm ready. I'm going to do this right. And she did do it right. She got to Chicago during this trip. And I don't know if you know this, but there are more Polish speakers or at least were at the time, in yeah. Chicago, Illinois, than there were in Warsaw. Yeah. And when Marie pulls up in Chicago, it is like firestorm of adoration. You can't yeah. even imagine. She was able to help celebrate the 50th anniversary of the light bulb with Henry Ford and President Hoover, among other people, in Michigan. And finally, when she was handed the check, a few days later, the stock market crashed. So good thing she got that check in her hand because bad things happened right after she did. And then she's able to travel back to an independent Poland and give her first scientific speech in her native tongue. Remember, she could never speak in Polish as a child because it was punishable. And to her great joy, no way. Her old headmistress from elementary school was in the audience, the one that used to call on her during the Russian inspections. <laughs> It was just like she'd come full, full circle. Full circle. It was great. Irene became the heiress apparent of the laboratory. That's natural enough. She and her fellow scientist husband actually won the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1935. Marie Curie did not live to see the actual award, but she did witness the thing they won for, which was artificial radioactivity. She was so proud. And, you know, that's five Nobel Prizes in the family. <laughs> she said at that moment she felt intense joy when she saw her daughter's accomplishment in the field that she and her husband had pioneered. Marie was really going downhill really very fast. And by now, everyone knew that radioactivity was dangerous. Now, a lot of scientists were working in lead-lined rooms or at least stored things in lead-lined boxes and used long tongs at least, or no. protective clothing that had lead aprons in it. And, you know, factory workers were a little more shielded. They had their blood monitored daily. So those precautions are in place. But Marie kept in the old way. She just picked things up with her bare hands. And there I saw a picture of uh, Irene actually using a like a little straw like thing. There's a technical word for Pipettes. it. I forget. Pipette. Thank you. In sucking up radioactive material into this, like with her mouth. So that's what they're doing. 
You know what? That is like the moms of today who grew up in the 70s and insist that their children wear helmets, bicycling, but they get on their own bike with just a ponytail on their head. I mean, okay, Marie had kept a vial of radium on her bedside table as a nightlight. So probably at this point, long tongs are going to be too little too late. So just pick it up with your hand. There is a big scandal in 1925. Speaking of safety, it's called the Radium Girls Scandal. And it was a radioactive paint painted on watch hands so they glow in the dark. Super cool. And in order to keep the brushes very pointed so they could paint with great precision, the ladies were instructed to put the brushes in their mouths and twirl them to make a sharp point before they dipped their brush back in the radium paint. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be too graphic. You can certainly follow the link if you wish to. But let's just say they fell apart grievously. Mm-hmm. Grievously. Quickly, too. Yes, very quickly. There's another story of a man named Eben Byers who drank radium water three times a day for a couple years and his jaw fell off. <sighs> Engineers and doctors and nurses from those early days were going down like nine pins all over the world. Okay, here's the good news, though. Cancer research involving radioactivity was just now becoming effective. This is the 1930s. So for 20 or so years, radium was the go-to. It's since been replaced by cobalt and other things, but there's both sides of the radium coin. It can cause great harm, great harm, and it could also cause great joy. While on vacation with her daughter Eve, Marie Curie died on July 4th, 1934 of aplastic anemia, which basically means her bone marrow had lost its ability to function at all. Um, She was only 67. Per her wishes, she was buried actually on top of Pierre's casket. And so the grave actually had um, Grandpa on the bottom and then Pierre um, in the middle and then Marie on the top, her ashes. It seems kind of fitting. Was it Pierre, Grandpa, and then him? She moved him around, I think, because she wanted Grandpa on the bottom and then Pierre. So when Grandpa died, yeah. She had two handfuls of Polish earth placed in the grave before the French dirt came in. She remained there until 1995 when the French government exhumed both of them. I don't think Grandpa made it. No, he's still there. there. He's all alone now. But um, the government moved both Curies to the Pantheon in Paris, and there is a monument to them. And that is the end of the story of Marie Curie's life. And it should be noted that um, there is actually another element named in her honor, Curium, which could be after both she and Pierre. Again, Curium, which is number 96, which happened um, near the end of World War II, so 1944. There is also an Einsteinium, by the way. It's number 99. And I didn't know that there was a real Krypton. I didn't know. Oh. Uh, Pre-Superman, 1898. So the Superman guys were science nerds, I guess. And Krypton sounds super cool. And they used the name. I don't know if it's green. I guess I didn't look that up. Oh. But there is a real element named Krypton. Huh. Interesting. Can you verify or not? I saw in two different sources that tests were done on her ashes that revealed lower levels of radiation than were expected. And they were concluded that her death was not as a result to the radium that she handled in her lifetime, but rather to the exposures of the x-rays during the war. Yeah, that's what, um, yeah, I think that's what I saw too. That's like a tragic end. You know, you think, oh, the radium killed him. No, the good things she did during the war is what killed her. Oh. 
Still, though, her papers, even now, are too radioactive to really handle without being shielded. Even now. Even now. That is amazing. After she died, Irene and her husband did accept their Nobel Prize. And Eve, Eve, little left behind Eve, uh, she became a writer. She wrote a biography of her mother that was published in 1937 and adapted into a movie in 1943. She was an accomplished pianist. She worked for UNICEF alongside her husband, who was the director, and later earned his own Nobel Prize for Peace. It's like the family collects Nobel Prizes. She never had any children and lived her final years in New York City. She had been a U.S. citizen since 1958, and she died in 2007 at the age of 102. 102. That's astonishing to me. Now, she's well, also the one that didn't go to the lab ever, and the one that didn't do any x-raying during the war. Yeah. So, so maybe longevity reigned in the family, but you just couldn't tell. We are going to start with books, as usual. So I have a book that, in appearance, and the illustrations, which are woodcut, look so much like the yellow editions of the Little House books. It's called The Radium Woman, A Life of Marie Curie by Eleanor Dorley. And um, the thing that I found very interesting about this is during the chapter where Langevin and Marie have their affair, this book is indignant about lies spread by jealous people. And it does not go into the reality of the situation at all. <laughs> Glossed right over it, just like Laura Ingalls Wilder did. Yeah, it's kind of funny because it's <laughs> it's told in a very indignant tone. They they put unkind things in the newspapers about her and it made her feel sad. And I'm like, well, yes, I found that very touching that they were defending her in that way. Yeah, well, that's sweet. I have a YA book. It's called Obsessive Genius, The Inner World of Marie Curie by Barbara Goldsmith. So I did have that book. So I'm moving on to the next one, simply titled Curie by Sarah Dry, D-R-Y. And it's it seems like a thin book, but it is packed, 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 packed with information. It's very well laid out. I would say it's a grown-up level book, but it is very easy to read. And then as a tangent, I have a book called Marie Curie and Her Daughters by Shelley Emling. And that's where I got most of the stuff about uh, <laughs> the wearing stilts and the lipstick. And It doesn't cover her whole life, but it starts um, later on and goes back and forth. So yeah, I like that one too. There is an epically illustrated National Book Award finalist illustrated book called Radioactive Marie and Pierre Curie, A Tale of Love and Fallout by Lauren Redness. And it is so surreal. I can't describe it. The illustrations are so Salvador Dali, maybe like, mm -hmm. I don't even know. That's not the right. Anyway, all the type is interestingly placed and the illustrations are very, um, it evokes this, the feeling of what's happening in Marie Curie's life. It's a pretty big book, and there it's very thorough, but it is undescribable. I've got some pages for it on the Pinterest board mm -hmm. so that you can witness for yourself the indescribable notion of that art. We'll have the books in our show notes for everything. I kind of feel like the last one I have isn't as great as that one, but it's a good biography. It's called The Curies, a biography of the most controversial family in science by Dennis Bryan. Uh, also very in-depth, but not nearly as dramatic as the one you just talked about. I thought it was very well written. 
And then I have, I don't, why did I write this? I don't know. I have a little list called things named after Marie Curie. <laughs> so I have Pierre and Marie Curie Metro Station in Paris up until the 90s. I think it was just the Pierre Curie Metro Station, actually. A Mars rover that never got to roll, uh, though I think it got near. It was the spare. I think it went to Mars, but I think it didn't get deployed. Bummer. Um, a rose, a bridge in Poland, many schools, including an elementary school in San Diego that one of our listeners went to, a middle school in New York City, a high school in Chicago, and many colleges, universities, and hospitals. As far as movies go, um, this there's the 1943 Greer Garson Walter Pigeon version, which was based on the book that Eve wrote. Uh, how, how much did you love it? Okay, here's <laughs> I, here's my five word review. Ready? Very stagey. OMG blurg arg. That's literally <laughs> what I wrote. I watched the trailer and the titles come across. The music's very dramatic, very gone with the windian to the point where I even looked up to see. Um, no, it's not the same guy, but it sure sounds like that. Do, 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 do. It's like too dramatic for what's happening. The love story of the most exciting woman of her day. The truth about their journey into the unknown. You know, come on. But I don't want to give it up. I can't. I can't. Yeah. Um, I didn't get through it, <laughs> which is actually good because you it's really hard to find. It's not available on any of the streaming sites. It's not in, on YouTube where you can usually get movies. It, you, there's scenes of it, but not the whole thing. You could legitimately yeah. just watch the trailer and see how you feel. Because I don't That's think right. you're going to need to go down any further down that path. But fortunately for this world, there is a new one. Uh, it was done, I, I'm going to guess it's in Polish because it was a Polish director and Polish actresses and it was filmed in Poland. It's called Maria Sklodowska Curie. It just premiered in August of 2016 at the Toronto International Film Festival. So a little modern interpretation of the story. I think I'd like to see that one, even if I had to read it. There is another movie that I am not going to actually recommend, but I have been forced to mention <laughs> due to the fact that it is one of my husband's favorite movies of all time. Incomprehensible to me. But if you like the likes of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, you might like Young Einstein. <laughs> yes, it is Yahoo Serious. He's Young Einstein, who is from Australia for no apparent reason and plays the violin. And his best friend slash love interest is Marie Curie, who in the movie has a French accent. I don't know. <laughs> so there it is. Things blow up. His hair sticks up in comic fashion. His pants are too short. That's all I really remember. But Chris Graham, our sometimes announcer, wanted to make sure that you guys check that out. So, okay. I can officially and if you did, cross What that year off. was that? Oh my gosh, that was was that eighties or nineties? I want to say late late eighties, probably maybe early nineties. I don't know. Somewhere you know. Yeah. One that I could recommend is a, is a documentary by the BBC. It's called The Genius of Marie Curie, The Woman Who Lit Up the World, which you can watch online and we'll give a link to. Some of this stuff has to go back to the previous episode also, but um, there is a picture and an article about the x-ray of Mrs. Rontgen's hand, the first x-ray ever taken of a human being. I have a link to what is the deal with the partitioning of Poland, if you're interested about why Marie's childhood was so fraught with Russian oppression. There is an article about her radioactive papers, 
and how 100 years later, no one can touch them. They Might Be Giants have a song called Meet the Elements. There is another song, adults only, just because of, I don't know, watch it for yourself. It's called Chemical Party. And and, uh, it's basically like the elements are at a party and things that happen at the party. So (laughs) is that a YouTube? It's on YouTube. Yes, I've got a link here. Uh, Okay. If you're not going to mention Doctor Who, I will. Uh, you can go ahead and do that because I honestly didn't write it down. So the eighth doctor, she doesn't appear, at least not in the episode that I found, but he does mention that she's a good kisser. Um, (laughs) then also the Curies appear as laser Godzilla zombies on the Simpsons in an episode that I will provide you a link to. (laughs) Um, I have see look honestly I have so much weird stuff I have the Lord's Prayer in Russian audio um, because she had to recite that for the Russian inspector and more seriously I have both the Marie Curie Cancer Hospital that was a uh, cancer hospital that was started in the 20s with Marie Curie's approval that was staffed by only women that worked on radioactive cancer treatments that hospital has become what is now an institution in Britain, or as Susan would say, Britain. <sighs> Go ahead. Mock me. <laughs> no, I'm embracing. I'm highlighting. <laughs> um, the Marie Curie Hospice. Every March, they have a, a very large, very well-publicized fundraising drive where you can buy a pin, like a brooch, shaped like a daffodil. And it goes toward cancer research and their hospice outreach. Uh, there is, of course, a museum. It's the uh, Musée Curie in Paris. You can tour it online a little bit. But all I wrote down was it included her garden, replicating the garden that she had originally put at the Institute and including the pink Marie Curie rose that you talked about earlier. Except I went on to describe it because that's the kind of plant nerd I am. But it's a bush rose. It's light orange to pink blooms and it prolifically blooms all summer long. I do want to give a couple nods to the young women who are looking to science in their future. One, there was, it's on YouTube and I'm going to put it up for them. It's, it's homemade, but it's three high school girls honors physics project. And they did an epic rap battle between Jane Goodall and Marie Curie. It's, it was really cute. I mean, it's not slick production or anything, but I, it was really cute. I, I hope they got an A on that. And there is a program at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. It was a girls' math camp. And as part of their program this summer, they put together podcasts about female mathematicians. Now, Marie isn't on there, but I thought she tied in because she's math. And I just, I just love this program for girls. It was for high achieving girls in the area. It looked really fun and I am not a math person. So we'll link you up to their, uh, their podcast. One more for it that is a little bit higher production value. Um, there is a series on YouTube called Draw My Life. They have a YouTube channel and they have a Marie Curie. They have dedicated to math and physics. And that's pretty much all I have. And that's all I have too. So we will leave you with some words from Marie Curie herself. I am among those who think that science has great beauty. We should not allow it to be believed that all scientific progress can be reduced to mechanism. Neither do I believe that the spirit of adventure runs any risk of disappearing in our world. If I see anything vital around me, it's precisely that spirit of adventure which seems indestructible. Thanks for listening. Bye.
The end. If you learned something today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. New items are added daily on the Pinterest boards. Weirdly, I have recently found a whole lot of new art for the Red Riding Hood board. And the Marie Curie board is all brand new, of course. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The History Chicks. The closing song is Marie Curie by The Crypts. And there's a link in our show notes for you to buy it from the artists. Science and technology! Ding dong, ding.